BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 9 of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. First, gentlemen, an ancient land in ancient oracles is called Lawthirsty. All the struggle there was after order and a perfect rule. Pray, where lie such lands now? Second, gentlemen, why, where they lay of old, in human souls. Mr. Casabon's behavior about settlements was highly satisfactory to Mr. Brooke and the preliminaries of marriage rolled smoothly along, shortening the weeks of courtship. The betrothed bride must see her future home and dictate any changes that she would like to have made there. A woman dictates before marriage in order that she may have an appetite for submission afterwards, and certainly the mistakes that we male and female mortals make when we have our own way might fairly raise some wonder that we are so fond of it. On a grey but dry November morning, Dorothea drove to Lowick in company with her uncle and Celia. Mr. Casaubon's home was the manor-house. Close by, visible from some parts of the garden, was the little church, with the old parsonage opposite. In the beginning of his career Mr. Casaubon had only held the living, but the death of his brother had put him in possession of the manor also. It had a small park, with a fine old oak here and there, and an avenue of limes towards the southwest front, with a sunk fence between park and pleasure-ground, so that from the drawing-room windows the glance swept uninterruptedly along a slope of greensward, till the limes ended in a level of corn and pastures, which often seemed to melt into a lake under the setting sun. This was the happy side of the house, for the south and east looked rather melancholy even under the brightest morning. The grounds here were more confined, the flower-beds showed no very careful tendance, and large clumps of trees, chiefly of sombre yews, had risen high, not ten yards from the windows. The building, of greenish stone, was in the old English style, not ugly, but small-windowed and melancholy-looking, the sort of house that must have children, many flowers, open windows, and little vistas of bright things to make it seem a joyous home. In this latter end of autumn, with the sparse remnant of yellow leaves falling slowly athwart the dark evergreens, in a stillness without sunshine, the house, too, had an air of autumnal decline, and Mr. Casaubon, when he presented himself, 
had no bloom that could be thrown into relief by that background. "'Oh, dear,' Celia said to herself, "'I am sure Freshet Hall would have been pleasanter than this.' She thought of the white freestone, the pillared portico, and the terrace full of flowers, Sir James smiling above them like a prince issuing from his enchantment in a rose-bush, with a handkerchief swiftly metamorphosed from the most delicately odorous petals. Sir James, who talked so agreeably, always about things which had common sense in them, and not about learning. Celia had those light young feminine tastes which grave and weather-worn gentlemen sometimes prefer in a wife, but happily Mr. Casaubon's bias had been different, for he would have had no chance with Celia. Dorothea, on the contrary, found the house and grounds all that she could wish, the dark bookshelves in the long library, the carpets and curtains with colors subdued by time, the curious old maps, and bird's-eye views on the walls of the corridor, with here and there an old vase below, had no oppression for her, and seemed more cheerful than the casts and pictures at the Grange, which her uncle had long ago brought home from his travels, they being probably among the ideas he had taken in at one time. To poor Dorothea these severe classical nudities and smirking Renaissance corregiosities were painfully inexplicable, staring into the midst of her puritanic conceptions. She had never been taught how she could bring them into any sort of relevance with her life. But the owners of Lowick apparently had not been travellers, and Mr. Casaubon's studies of the past were not carried on by means of such aids. Dorothea walked about the house with delightful emotion. Everything seemed hallowed to her. This was to be the home of her wifehood, and she looked up with eyes full of confidence to Mr. Casaubon when he drew her attention specially to some actual arrangement and asked her if she would like an alteration. All appeals to her taste she met gratefully, but saw nothing to alter. His efforts at exact courtesy and formal tenderness had no defect for her. She filled up all blanks with unmanifested perfections, interpreting him as she interpreted the works of Providence, and accounting for seeming discords by her own deafness to the higher harmonies. And there are many blanks left in the weeks of courtship, which a loving faith fills with happy assurance. Now, my dear Dorothea, I wish you to favor me by pointing out which room you would like to have as your boudoir, said Mr. Casaubon, showing that his views of the womanly nature were sufficiently large to include that requirement. It is very kind of you to think of that, said Dorothea, but I assure you I would rather have all those matters decided for me. I shall be much happier to take everything as it is, just as you have been used to have it, or as you will yourself choose it to be. I have no motive for wishing anything else. Oh, Dodo, said Celia, will you not have the bow-windowed room upstairs? Mr. Casaubon led the way thither. The bow-window looked down the avenue of limes. The furniture was all of a faded blue, and there were miniatures of ladies and gentlemen with powdered hair hanging in a group. A piece of tapestry over a door also showed a blue-green world, with a pale stag in it. The chairs and tables were thin-legged, 
and easy to upset. It was a room where one might fancy the ghost of a tight-laced lady revisiting the scene of her embroidery. A light bookcase contained duodecimal volumes of polite literature in calf, completing the furniture. "'Yes,' said Mr. Brooke, "'this would be a pretty room with some new hangings, sofas, and that sort of thing. A little bare now.' "'No, uncle,' said Dorothea eagerly. "'Pray do not speak of altering anything. There are so many other things in the world that want altering. I like to take these things as they are. And you like them as they are, don't you?' she added, looking at Mr. Casaubon. "'Perhaps this was your mother's room when she was young.' "'It was,' he said, with a slow bend of the head. "'This is your mother,' said Dorothea, who had turned to examine the group of miniatures. "'It is like the tiny one you brought me, only I should think a better portrait. And this one opposite, who is this?' "'Her elder sister. They were, like you and your sister, the only two children of their parents, who hang above them, you see.' "'The sister is pretty,' said Celia, implying that she thought less favorably of Mr. Casaubon's mother. It was a new opening to Celia's imagination that he came of a family who had all been young in their time, the ladies wearing necklaces. "'It is a peculiar face,' said Dorothea, looking closely, "'those deep gray eyes rather near together, and the delicate irregular nose with a sort of ripple in it and all the powdered curls hanging backward. Altogether it seems to me peculiar rather than pretty. There is not even a family likeness between her and your mother. No, and they were not alike in their lot. You did not mention her to me, said Dorothea. My aunt made an unfortunate marriage. I never saw her. Dorothea wondered a little, but felt that it would be indelicate just then to ask for any information which Mr. Casaubon did not proffer, and she turned to the window to admire the view. The sun had lately pierced the gray, and the avenue of limes cast shadows. "'Shall we not walk in the garden now?' said Dorothea. "'And you would like to see the church, you know,' said Mr. Brooke. "'It is a droll little church, and the village. It all lies in a nutshell. By the way, it will suit you, Dorothea.' for the cottages are like a row of almshouses, little gardens, gilly-flowers, that sort of thing. "'Yes, please,' said Dorothea, looking at Mr. Casaubon. "'I should like to see all that.' She had got nothing from him more graphic about the Lowick cottages than that they were not bad. They were soon on a gravel walk which led chiefly between grassy borders and clumps of trees, this being the nearest way to the church, Mr. Casaubon said. At the little gate leading into the churchyard there was a pause while Mr. Casaubon went to the parsonage close by to fetch a key. Celia, who had been hanging a little in the rear, came up presently, when she saw that Mr. Casaubon was gone away, and said in her easy staccato, which always seemed to contradict the suspicion of any malicious intent, "'Do you know, Dorothea, I saw someone quite young coming up one of the walks.' Is that astonishing, Celia? There may be a young gardener, you know. Why not? said Mr. Brooke. I told Casaubon he should change his gardener. No, not a gardener, said Celia. A gentleman with a sketch-book. He had light brown curls. I only saw his back, but he was quite young. The curate's son, perhaps, said Mr. Brooke. Ah, there's Casaubon again, and Tucker with him. 
He's going to introduce Tucker. You don't know Tucker yet. Mr. Tucker was the middle-aged curate, one of the inferior clergy, who are usually not wanting in sons. But after the introduction the conversation did not lead to any question about his family, and the startling apparition of youthfulness was forgotten by every one but Celia. She inwardly declined to believe that the light brown curls and slim figure could have any relationship to Mr. Tucker, who was just as old and musty-looking as she would have expected Mr. Casaubon's curate to be. Doubtless an excellent man who would go to heaven, for Celia wished not to be unprincipled, but the corners of his mouth were so unpleasant. Celia thought with some dismalness of the time she should have to spend as bridesmaid at Lowick, where the curate had probably no pretty little children whom she could like, irrespective of principle. Mr. Tucker was invaluable in their walk, and perhaps Mr. Casaubon had not been without foresight on this head, the curate being able to answer all Dorothea's questions about the villagers and the other parishioners. Everybody, he assured her, was well off in Lowick. Not a cottager in those double cottages at a low rent but kept a pig, and the strips of garden at the back were well tended. The small boys wore excellent corduroy, the girls went out as tidy servants, or did a little straw-plating at home. No looms here, no descent, and though the public disposition was rather towards laying by money than towards spirituality, there was not much vice. The speckled fowls were so numerous that Mr. Brooke observed, "'Your farmers leave some barley for the women to glean, I see. The poor folks here might have a fowl in their pot, as the good French king used to wish for all his people. The French eat a good many fowls, skinny fowls, you know.' "'I think it was a very cheap wish of his,' said Dorothy, indignantly. "'Are kings such monsters that a wish like that must be reckoned a royal virtue?' "'And if he wished them a skinny fowl,' said Celia, "'that would not be nice. "'But perhaps he wished them to have fat fowls.' "'Yes, but the word has dropped out of the text, "'or perhaps was sub auditum, "'that is, present in the king's mind, but not uttered,' "'said Mr. Casaubon, smiling, "'and bending his head towards Celia, "'who immediately dropped backward a little, "'because she could not bear Mr. Casaubon to blink at her. Dorothea sank into silence on the way back to the house. She felt some disappointment, of which she was yet ashamed, that there was nothing for her to do in Lowick, and in the next few minutes her mind had glanced over the possibility, which she would have preferred, of finding that her home would be in a parish which had a larger share of the world's misery, so that she might have had more active duties in it. Then, recurring to the future actually before her, she made a picture of more complete devotion to Mr. Casaubon's aims, in which she would await new duties. Many such might reveal themselves to the higher knowledge gained by her in that companionship. Mr. Tucker soon left them, having some clerical work which would not allow him to lunch at the hall, and as they were re-entering the garden through the little gate, Mr. Casaubon said, "'You seem a little sad, Dorothea.' I trust you are pleased with what you have seen. I am feeling something which is perhaps foolish and wrong, answered Dorothea, with her usual openness, almost wishing that the people wanted more to be done for them here. I have known so few ways of making my life good for anything. 
Of course, my notions of usefulness must be narrow. I must learn new ways of helping people. Doubtless, said Mr. Casaubon, each position has its corresponding duties. Yours, I trust, as the mistress of Lowick, will not leave any yearning unfulfilled. Indeed, I believe that, said Dorothea earnestly. Do not suppose that I am sad. That is well, but if you are not tired we will take another way to the house than that by which we came. Dorothea was not at all tired, and a little circuit was made towards a fine yew-tree, the chief hereditary glory of the grounds on this side of the house. As they approached it, a figure, conspicuous on a dark background of evergreens, was seated on a bench, sketching the old tree. Mr. Brooke, who was walking in front with Celia, turned his head and said, "'Who is that youngster Casaubon?' They had come very near when Mr. Casaubon answered, "'That is a young relative of mine, a second cousin. The grandson, in fact,' he added, looking at Dorothea, "'of the lady whose portrait you have been noticing, my Aunt Julia.' The younger man had laid down his sketch-book and risen. His bushy, light-brown curls, as well as his youthfulness, identified him at once with Celia's apparition. "'Dorothea, let me introduce to you my cousin, Mr. Ladislaw. Will, this is Miss Brooke.' The cousin was so close now that, when he lifted his hat, Dorothea could see a pair of grey eyes rather near together, a delicate irregular nose with a little ripple in it, and hair falling backward, but there was a mouth and chin of a more prominent, threatening aspect than belonged to the type of the grandmother's miniature. Young Ladislaw did not feel it necessary to smile, as if he were charmed with this introduction to his future second cousin and her relatives, but wore a rather pouting air of discontent. "'You are an artist, I see,' said Mr. Brooke, taking up the sketch-book and turning it over in his unceremonious fashion. "'No, I only sketch a little. There is nothing fit to be seen there,' said young Ladislaw, colouring, perhaps with temper rather than modesty. "'Oh, come, this is a nice bit now. I did a little in this way myself at one time, you know. Look here now, this is what I call a nice thing, done with what we used to call brio.' Mr. Brooke held out towards the two girls a large-coloured sketch of stony ground and trees with a pool. "'I am no judge of these things,' said Dorothea, not coldly, but with an eager deprecation of the appeal to her. "'You know, uncle, I never see the beauty of those pictures which you say are so much praised. They are a language I do not understand. I suppose there is some relation between pictures and nature which I am too ignorant to feel.' just as you see what a Greek sentence stands for, which means nothing to me. Dorothea looked up at Mr. Casaubon, who bowed his head towards her, while Mr. Brooke said, smiling nonchalantly, "'Bless me now! How different people are! But you had a bad style of teaching, you know, else this is just the thing for girls—sketching, fine art, and so on. But you took to drawing plans. You don't understand morbidezza and that kind of thing. You will come to my house, I hope, and I will show you what I did in this way," he continued, turning to young Ladislaw, who had to be recalled from his preoccupation in observing Dorothea. Ladislaw had made up his mind that she must be an unpleasant girl, since she was going to marry Casaubon, and what she said of her stupidity about pictures 
would have confirmed that opinion even if he had believed her. As it was, he took her words for a covert judgment, and was certain that she thought his sketch detestable. There was too much cleverness in her apology. She was laughing both at her uncle and himself. But what a voice! It was like the voice of a soul that had once lived in an aeolian harp. This must be one of nature's inconsistencies. There could be no sort of passion in a girl who would marry Casaubon. But he turned from her and bowed his thanks for Mr. Brooke's invitation. "'We will turn over my Italian engravings together,' continued that good-natured man. "'I have no end of those things that I have laid by for years. One gets rusty in this part of the country, you know. Not you, Casaubon. You stick to your studies. But my best ideas get undermost. Out of use, you know. You clever young men must guard against indolence. I was too indolent, you know. Else I might have been anywhere at one time. That is a seasonable admonition, said Mr. Casaubon. But now we will pass on to the house, lest the young ladies should be tired of standing. When their backs were turned, young Ladislaw sat down to go on with his sketching, and as he did so, his face broke into an expression of amusement which increased as he went on drawing, till at last he threw back his head and laughed aloud. Partly it was the reception of his own artistic production that tickled him, partly the notion of his grave cousin as the lover of that girl, and partly Mr. Brooke's definition of the place he might have held but for the impediment of indolence. Mr. Will Ladislaw's sense of the ludicrous lit up his features very agreeably. It was the pure enjoyment of comicality, and had no mixture of sneering and self-exultation. "'What is your nephew going to do with himself, Casaubon?' said Mr. Brooke, as they went on. "'My cousin, you mean, not my nephew.' "'Yes, yes, cousin. But in the way of a career, you know.' The answer to that question is painfully doubtful. On leaving Rugby, he declined to go to an English university, where I would gladly have placed him, and chose what I must consider the anomalous course of studying at Heidelberg. Now he wants to go abroad again, without any special object, save the vague purpose of what he calls culture, preparation for he knows not what. He declines to choose a profession." He has no means but what you furnish, I suppose. I have always given him and his friends reason to understand that I would furnish in moderation what was necessary for providing him with a scholarly education, and launching him respectably. I am therefore bound to fulfill the expectation so raised, said Mr. Casaubon, putting his conduct in the light of mere rectitude, a trait of delicacy which Dorothea noticed with admiration. He has a thirst for travelling. Perhaps he may turn out a Bruce or a Mungo Park, said Mr. Brooke. I had a notion of that myself at one time. No, he has no bent towards exploration, or the enlargement of our geognosis. That would be a special purpose which I could recognize with some approbation, though without felicitating him on a career which so often ends in premature and violent death but so far is he from having any desire for a more accurate knowledge of the earth's surface that he said he should prefer not to know the sources of the Nile, 
and that there should be some unknown regions preserved as hunting-grounds for the poetic imagination. "'Well, there is something in that, you know,' said Mr. Brooke, who had certainly an impartial mind. "'It is, I fear, nothing more than a part of his general inaccuracy and indisposition to thoroughness of all kinds, which would be a bad augury for him in any profession, civil or sacred, even were he so far submissive to ordinary rule as to choose one. "'Perhaps he has conscientious scruples founded on his own unfitness,' said Dorothea, who was interesting herself in finding a favorable explanation. "'Because the law and medicine should be very serious professions to undertake, should they not? People's lives and fortunes depend on them.' "'Doubtless.' but I fear that my young relative Will Ladislaw is chiefly determined in his aversion to these callings by a dislike to steady application, and to that kind of acquirement which is needful instrumentally, but is not charming or immediately inviting to self-indulgent taste. I have insisted to him on what Aristotle has stated with admirable brevity, that for the achievement of any work regarded as an end, there must be a prior exercise of many energies or acquired facilities of a secondary order, demanding patience. I have pointed to my own manuscript volumes, which represent the toil of years preparatory to a work not yet accomplished, but in vain. To careful reasoning of this kind he replies by calling himself Pegasus, and every form of prescribed work harness. Celia laughed. She was surprised to find that Mr. Casaubon could say something quite amusing. "'Well, you know, he may turn out a Byron, a Chatterton, a Churchill, that sort of thing. There's no telling,' said Mr. Brooke. "'Shall you let him go to Italy, or wherever else he wants to go?' "'Yes, I have agreed to furnish him with moderate supplies for a year or so. He asks no more. I shall let him be tried by the test of freedom.' "'That is very kind of you,' said Dorothea, looking up at Mr. Casaubon with delight. "'It is noble. After all, people may really have in them some vocation which is not quite plain to themselves, may they not? They may seem idle and weak because they are growing. We should be very patient with each other, I think.' "'I suppose it is being engaged to be married that has made you think patience is good,' said Celia as soon as she and Dorothea were alone together, taking off their wrappings. "'You mean that I am very impatient, Celia?' "'Yes, when people don't do and say just what you like.' Celia had become less afraid of saying things to Dorothea since this engagement. Cleverness seemed to her more pitiable than ever. End of chapter 9《Chapter Ten of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espyot. He had catched a great cold, had he had no other clothes to wear than the skin of a bear not yet killed. Fuller. Young Ladislaw did not pay that visit to which Mr. Brooke had invited him, and only six days afterwards Mr. Casaubon mentioned that his young relative had started for the continent, seeming by this cold vagueness to wave inquiry. Indeed, 
Will had declined to fix on any more precise destination than the entire area of Europe. Genius, he held, is necessarily intolerant of fetters. On the one hand it must have the utmost play for its spontaneity, on the other it may confidently await those messages from the universe which summon it to its peculiar work, only placing itself in an attitude of receptivity towards all sublime chances. The attitudes of receptivity are various, and Will had sincerely tried many of them. He was not excessively fond of wine, but he had several times taken too much, simply as an experiment in that form of ecstasy. He had fasted till he was faint, and then supped on lobster. He had made himself ill with doses of opium. Nothing greatly original had resulted from these measures. The effects of the opium had convinced him that there was an entire dissimilarity between his constitution and de Quincey's. The super-added circumstance which would evolve the genius had not yet come. The universe had not yet beckoned. Even Caesar's fortune at one time was but a grand presentiment. We know what a masquerade all development is, and what effective shapes may be disguised in helpless embryos. In fact, the world is full of hopeful analogies and handsome, dubious eggs called possibilities. Will saw clearly enough the pitiable instances of long incubation producing no chick, but for gratitude would have laughed at Casabon, whose plodding application, rows of notebooks, and small taper of learned theory exploring the tossed ruins of the world, seemed to enforce a moral entirely encouraging to Will's generous reliance on the intentions of the universe with regard to himself. He held that reliance to be a mark of genius, and certainly it is no mark to the contrary, genius consisting neither in self-conceit nor in humility, but in a power to make or do, not anything in general but something in particular. Let him start for the continent, then, without our pronouncing on his future. Among all forms of mistake, prophecy is the most gratuitous. But at present this caution against a too hasty judgment interests me more in relation to Mr. Casabon than to his young cousin. If to Dorothea Mr. Casabon had been the mere occasion which had set alight the fine inflammable material of her youthful illusions, does it follow that he was fairly represented in the minds of those less impassioned personages who have hitherto delivered their judgments concerning him? I protest against any absolute conclusion, any prejudice derived from Mrs. Cadwallader's contempt for a neighboring clergyman's alleged greatness of soul, of Sir James Chetham's poor opinion of his rival's legs, from Mr. Brooke's failure to elicit a companion's ideas, or from Celia's criticism of a middle-aged scholar's personal appearance. I am not sure that the greatest man of his age, if ever that solitary superlative existed, could escape these unfavorable reflections of himself in various small mirrors, and even Milton, looking for his portrait in a spoon, must submit to have the facial angle of a bumpkin. Moreover, if Mr. Casabon, speaking for himself, has rather chilling rhetoric, 
it is not therefore certain that there is no good work or fine feeling in him did not an immortal physicist and interpreter of hieroglyphs write detestable verses has the theory of the solar system been advanced by graceful manners and conversational tact suppose we turn from outside estimates of a man to wonder with keener interest what is the report of his own consciousness about his doings or capacity with what hindrances is he carrying on his daily labors what fading of hopes or what deeper fixity of self-delusion the years are marking off within him and with what spirit he wrestles against universal pressure which will one day be too heavy for him and bring his heart to its final pause doubtless his lot is important in his own eyes and the chief reason that we think he asks too large a place in our consideration must be our want of room for him since we refer him to the divine regard with perfect confidence nay it is even held sublime for our neighbors to expect the utmost there however little he may have got from us mr casaubon too was the centre of his own world if he was liable to think that others were providentially made for him and especially to consider them in the light of their fitness for the author of a key to all mythologies this trait is not quite alien to us and like the other mendicant hopes of mortals claims some of our pity certainly this affair of his marriage with miss brooke touched him more nearly than it did any one of the persons who have hitherto shown their disapproval of it and in the present stage of things i feel more tenderly towards his experience of success than towards the disappointment of the amiable sir james for in truth as the day fixed for his marriage came nearer mr casaubon did not find his spirits rising nor did the contemplation of that matrimonial garden scene where as all experience showed the path was to be bordered with flowers prove persistently more enchanting to him than the accustomed vaults where he walked taper in hand he did not confess to himself still less could he have breathed to another his surprise that though he had won a lovely and noble-hearted girl he had not won delight which he had also regarded as an object to be found by search it is true that he knew all the classical passages implying the contrary but knowing classical passages we find is a mode of motion which explains why they leave so little extra force for their personal application poor mr casaubon had imagined that his long studious bachelorhood had stored up for him a compound interest of enjoyment and that large drafts on his affections would not fail to be honored for we all of us grave or light get our thoughts entangled in metaphors and act fatally on the strength of them and now he was in danger of being saddened by the very conviction that his circumstances were unusually happy there was nothing external by which he could account for a certain blankness of sensibility which came over him just when his expectant gladness should have been most lively just when he exchanged the accustomed dullness of his lowick library for his visits to the grange here was a weary experience in which he was as utterly condemned to loneliness as in the despair which sometimes threatened him 
while toiling in the morass of authorship without seeming nearer to the goal. And his was that worst loneliness which could shrink from sympathy. He could not but wish that Dorothea should think him not less happy than the world would expect her successful suitor to be, and in relation to his authorship he leaned on her young trust and veneration. He liked to draw forth her fresh interest in listening as a means of encouragement to himself. In talking to her he presented all his performance and intention with the reflected confidence of the pedagogue, and rid himself for the time of that chilling ideal audience which crowded his laborious uncreative hours with the vaporous pressure of Tartarian shades. For to Dorothea, after that toy-box history of the world adapted to young ladies, which had made the chief part of her education, Mr. Casaubon's talk about his great book was full of new vistas, and this sense of revelation, this surprise of a nearer introduction to Stoics and Alexandrians, as people who had ideas not totally unlike her own, kept in abeyance for the time her usual eagerness for a binding theory which could bring her own life and doctrine into strict connection with that amazing past, and give the remotest sources of knowledge some bearing on her actions. That more complete teaching would come. Mr. Casaubon would tell her all that. She was looking forward to higher initiation in ideas, as she was looking forward to marriage, and blending her dim conceptions of both. It would be a great mistake to suppose that Dorothea would have cared about any share in Mr. Casaubon's learning as mere accomplishment, for though opinion in the neighborhood of Freshett and Tipton had pronounced her clever, that epithet would not have described her to circles in whose more precise vocabulary cleverness implies mere aptitude for knowing and doing, apart from character. All her eagerness for acquirement lay within that full current of sympathetic motive in which her ideas and impulses were habitually swept along. She did not want to deck herself with knowledge, to wear it loose from the nerves and blood that fed her action, and if she had written a book she must have done it as St. Teresa did, under the command of an authority that constrained her conscience but something she yearned for by which her life might be filled with action at once rational and ardent, and, since the time was gone by for guiding visions and spiritual directors, since prayer heightened yearning, but not instruction, what lamp was there but knowledge? Surely learned men kept the only oil, and who more learned than Mr. Casaubon? Thus, in these brief weeks, Dorothea's joyous, grateful expectation was unbroken, and however her lover might occasionally be conscious of flames, he could never refer it to any slackening of her affectionate interest. The season was mild enough to encourage the project of extending the wedding journey as far as Rome, and Mr. Casaubon was anxious for this because he wished to inspect some manuscripts in the Vatican. "'I still regret that your sister is not to accompany us,' he said one morning, some time after it had been ascertained that Celia objected to go, and that Dorothea did not wish for her companionship. "'You will have many lonely hours, Dorothea, for I shall be constrained to make the utmost use of my time during our stay in Rome, and I should feel more at liberty if you had a companion.' 
the words i should feel more at liberty grated on dorothea for the first time in speaking to mr casaubon she colored from annoyance you must have misunderstood me very much she said if you think i should not enter into the value of your time if you think that i should not willingly give up whatever interfered with your using it to the best purpose that is very amiable in you my dear dorothea said mr casaubon not in the least noticing that she was hurt but if you had a lady as your companion i could put you both under the care of a cicerone and we could thus achieve two purposes in the same space of time i beg you will not refer to this again said dorothea rather haughtily but immediately she feared that she was wrong and turning toward him she laid her hand on his adding in a different tone pray do not be anxious about me i shall have so much to think of when i am alone and tantrip will be a sufficient companion just to take care of me i could not bear to have celia she would be miserable it was time to dress there was to be a dinner-party that day the last of the parties which were held at the grange as proper preliminaries to the wedding and dorothea was glad of a reason for moving away at once on the sound of the bell as if she needed more than her usual amount of preparation she was ashamed of being irritated from some cause she could not define even to herself for though she had no intention to be untruthful her reply had not touched the real hurt within her mr casaubon's words had been quite reasonable yet they had brought a vague instantaneous sense of aloofness on his part surely i am in a strangely selfish weak state of mind she said to herself how can i have a husband who is so much above me without knowing that he needs me less than i need him having convinced herself that mr casaubon was altogether right she recovered her equanimity and was an agreeable image of serene dignity when she came into the drawing-room in her silver-gray dress the simple lines of her dark brown hair parted over her brow and coiled massively behind in keeping with the entire absence from her manner and expression of all search after mere effect sometimes when dorothea was in company there seemed to be as complete an air of repose about her as if she had been a picture of santa barbara looking out from her tower into the clear air but these intervals of quietude made the energy of her speech and emotion the more remarked when some outward appeal had touched her she was naturally the subject of many observations this evening for the dinner-party was large and rather more miscellaneous as to the male portion than any which had been held at the grange since mr brooke's nieces had resided with him so that the talking was done in duos and trios more or less inharmonious there was the newly elected mayor of middlemarch who happened to be a manufacturer the philanthropic banker his brother-in-law who predominated so much in the town that some called him a methodist others a hypocrite according to the resources of their vocabulary and there were various professional men in fact mrs cadwallader had said that brooke was beginning to treat the middlemarchers and that she preferred the farmers at the tithe dinner who drank her health unpretentiously and were not ashamed of their grandfather's furniture for in that part of the country before reform had done its notable part in developing the political consciousness there was a clearer distinction of ranks and a dimmer distinction of parties 
so that Mr. Brooke's miscellaneous invitations seemed to belong to that general laxity which came from his inordinate travel and habit of talking too much in the form of ideas. Already, as Miss Brooke passed out of the dining-room, opportunity was found for some interjectional asides. "'A fine woman, Miss Brooke, an uncommonly fine woman, by God,' said Mr. Standish, the old lawyer, who had been so long concerned with the landed gentry that he had become landed himself, and used that oath in a deep-mouthed manner as a sort of armorial bearings, stamping the speech of a man who held a good position. Mr. Bulstrode, the banker, seemed to be addressed, but that gentleman disliked coarseness and profanity, and merely bowed. The remark was taken up by Mr. Chichley, a middle-aged bachelor and coursing celebrity, who had a complexion something like an Easter egg, a few hairs carefully arranged, and a carriage implying the consciousness of a distinguished appearance. "'Yes, but not my style of woman. I like a woman who lays herself out a little more to please us. There should be a little filigree about a woman, something of the coquette. A man likes a sort of challenge. The more of a dead set she makes at you, the better.' "'There's some truth in that,' said Mr. Standish, disposed to be genial. "'And, by God, it's usually the way with them.' I suppose it answers some wise ends. Providence made them so, eh, Bulstrode? I should be disposed to refer coquetry to another source, said Mr. Bulstrode. I should rather refer it to the devil. Aye, to be sure. There should be a little devil in a woman, said Mr. Chichely, whose study of the fair sex seemed to have been detrimental to his theology. And I like them blonde, with a certain gait, and a swan neck, between ourselves, the mayor's daughter is more to my taste than Miss Brooke, or Miss Celia, either. If I were a marrying man, I should choose Miss Vincy before either of them. "'Well, make up, make up,' said Mr. Standish, jocosely. "'You see the middle-aged fellows carry the day.' Mr. Chichley shook his head with much meaning. He was not going to incur the certainty of being accepted by the woman he would choose." The Miss Vincy, who had the honor of being Mr. Chichley's ideal, was of course not present, for Mr. Brooke, always objecting to go too far, would not have chosen that his nieces should meet the daughter of a Middlemarch manufacturer, unless it were on a public occasion. The feminine part of the company included none whom Lady Chetham or Mrs. Cadwallader could object to for Mrs. Renfrew, the colonel's widow, was not only unexceptionable in point of breeding, but also interesting on the ground of her complaint, which puzzled the doctors, and seemed clearly a case wherein the fullness of professional knowledge might need the supplement of quackery. Lady Chetham, who attributed her own remarkable health to home-made bitters united with constant medical attendance, entered with much exercise of the imagination into Mrs. Renfrew's account of symptoms, and into the amazing futility in her case of all strengthening medicines. "'Where can all the strength of those medicines go, my dear?' said the mild but stately dowager, turning to Mrs. Cadwallader reflectively, when Mrs. Renfrew's attention was called away. "'It strengthens the disease,' said the rector's wife much too well-born not to be an amateur in medicine. Everything depends on the constitution. Some people make fat, some blood, and some bile. That's my view of the matter. 
and whatever they take is a sort of grist to the mill. Then she ought to take medicines that would reduce, reduce the disease, you know, if you are right, my dear, and I think what you say is reasonable. Certainly it is reasonable. You have two sorts of potatoes, fed on the same soil. One of them grows more and more watery. Ah, like this poor Mrs. Renfrew. This is what I think. Dropsy. There's no swelling yet. It is inward. I should say she ought to take drying medicines, shouldn't you? Or a dry hot air bath. Many things might be tried of a drying nature. Let her try a certain person's pamphlets, said Mrs. Cadwallader in an undertone, seeing the gentleman enter. He does not want drying. Who, my dear, said Lady Chetham, a charming woman, not so quick as to nullify the pleasure of explanation. The bridegroom, Casabon. He has certainly been drying up faster since the engagement. The flame of passion, I suppose. I should think he is far from having a good constitution, said Lady Chetham, with a still deeper undertone. And then his studies, so very dry, as you say. Really, by the side of Sir James, he looks like a death-head skinned over for the occasion. Mark my words. In a year from this time that girl will hate him. She looks up to him as an oracle now, and by the by she will be at the other extreme. All flightiness. How very shocking! I fear she is headstrong. But tell me, you know all about him. Is there anything very bad? What is the truth? The truth? He is as bad as the wrong physic, nasty to take and sure to disagree. There could not be anything worse than that, said Lady Chetham, with so vivid a conception of the physic that she seemed to have learned something exact about Mr. Casbon's disadvantages. However, James will hear nothing against Miss Brooke. He says she is the mirror of women still. That is a generous make-believe of his. Depend upon it, he likes little Celia better, and she appreciates him. I hope you like my little Celia. Certainly. She is fonder of geraniums, and seems more docile, though not so fine a figure. But we were talking of physic. Tell me about this new young surgeon, Mr. Lydgate. I am told he is wonderfully clever. He certainly looks it, a fine brow indeed. He is a gentleman. I heard him talking to Humphrey. He talks well. Yes, Mr. Brooke says he is one of the Lydgates of Northumberland. Really well connected. One does not expect it in a practitioner of that kind. For my own part, I like a medical man more on a footing with the servants. They are often all the cleverer. I assure you, I found poor Hick's judgment unfailing. I never knew him wrong. He was coarse and butcher-like, but he knew my constitution. It was a loss to me his going off so suddenly. Dear me, what a very animated conversation Miss Brooke seems to be having with this Mr. Lydgate. She is talking cottages and hospitals with him, said Mrs. Cadwallader, whose ears and power of interpretation were quick. I believe he is a sort of philanthropist, so Brooke is sure to take him up. "'James,' said Lady Chetham when her son came near, "'bring Mr. Lydgate and introduce him to me. I want to test him.' The affable dowager declared herself delighted with this opportunity of making Mr. Lydgate's acquaintance, having heard of his success in treating fever on a new plan. 
Mr. Lydgate had the medical accomplishment of looking perfectly grave whatever nonsense was talked to him, and his dark, steady eyes gave him impressiveness as a listener. He was as little as possible like the lamented Hicks, especially in a certain careless refinement about his toilette and utterance. Yet Lady Chettam gathered much confidence in him. He confirmed her view of her own constitution as being peculiar, by admitting that all constitutions might be called peculiar, and he did not deny that hers might be more peculiar than others. He did not approve of a too-lowering system, including reckless cupping, nor, on the other hand, of incessant port wine and bark. He said, I think so, with an air of so much deference accompanying the insight of agreement that she formed the most cordial opinion of his talents. "'I am quite pleased with your protégé,' she said to Mr. Brooke before going away. "'My protégé? Dear me, who is that?' said Mr. Brooke. "'This young Lydgate, the new doctor. He seems to me to understand his profession admirably.' "'Oh, Lydgate! He is not my protégé, you know. Only I knew an uncle of his who sent me a letter about him. However, I think he is likely to be first-rate. Has studied in Paris, New Bruxelles, has ideas, you know.' wants to raise the profession. Lydgate has lots of ideas, quite new, about ventilation and diet, that sort of thing, resumed Mr. Brooke, after he had handed out Lady Chetham, and had returned to be civil to a group of Middlemarchers. Hang it! Do you think that is quite sound, upsetting the old treatment, which has made Englishmen what they are? said Mr. Standish. Medical knowledge is at a low ebb among us, said Mr. Bulstrode who spoke in a subdued tone, and had a rather sickly air. I, for my part, hail the advent of Mr. Lydgate. I hope to find good reason for confiding the new hospital to his management. That is all very fine, replied Mr. Standish, who is not fond of Mr. Bulstrode. If you like him to try experiments on your hospital patients and kill a few people for charity, I have no objection but I am not going to hand money out of my purse to have experiments tried on me. I like treatment that has been tested a little. Well, you know, Standish, every dose you take is an experiment. An experiment, you know, said Mr. Brooke, nodding towards the lawyer. Oh, if you talk in that sense, said Mr. Standish, with as much disgust at such non-legal quibbling as a man can well betray towards a valuable client. I should be glad of any treatment that would cure me without reducing me to a skeleton, like poor Granger, said Mr. Vincy, the mayor, a florid man, who would have served for a study of flesh in striking contrast with the Franciscan tents of Mr. Bulstrode. It's an uncommonly dangerous thing to be left without any padding against the shafts of disease, as somebody said, and I think it a very good expression myself. Mr. Lydgate, of course, was out of hearing. He had quitted the party early, and would have thought it altogether tedious but for the novelty of certain introductions, especially the introduction to Miss Brooke, whose youthful bloom, with her approaching marriage to that faded scholar, and her interest in matters socially useful, gave her the piquancy of an unusual combination. She is a good creature, that fine girl, but a little too earnest, he thought. It is troublesome to talk to such women. They are always wanting reasons, yet they are too ignorant to understand the merits of any question, 
and usually fall back on their moral sense to settle things after their own taste. Evidently Miss Brooke was not Mr. Lydgate's style of woman any more than Mr. Chichely's. Considered, indeed, in relation to the latter, whose mind was matured, she was altogether a mistake, and calculated to shock his trust in final causes, including the adaptation of fine young women to purple-faced bachelors. But Lydgate was less ripe, and might possibly have experience before him which would modify his opinion as to the most excellent things in woman. Miss Brooke, however, was not again seen by either of these gentlemen under her maiden name. Not long after that dinner-party she had become Mrs. Casaubon, and was on her way to Rome. End of chapter 10Chapter Eleven of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. But deeds and language such as men do use, and persons such as comedy would choose, when she would show an image of the times, and sport with human follies, not with crimes. Ben Jonson. Lydgate, in fact, was already conscious of being fascinated by a woman strikingly different from Miss Brooke. He did not in the least suppose that he had lost his balance and fallen in love, but he had said of that particular woman, "'She is grace itself. She is perfectly lovely and accomplished. That is what a woman ought to be. She ought to produce the effect of exquisite music.' Plain women he regarded as he did the other severe facts of life, to be faced with philosophy and investigated by science. But Rosamond Vincy seemed to have the true melodic charm, and when a man has seen the woman whom he would have chosen if he had intended to marry speedily, his remaining a bachelor will usually depend on her resolution rather than on his. Lydgate believed that he should not marry for several years, not marry until he had trodden out a good clear path for himself away from the broad road which was quite ready-made. He had seen Miss Vincy above his horizon almost as long as it had taken Mr. Casaubon to become engaged and married, but this learned gentleman was possessed of a fortune. He had assembled his voluminous notes, and had made that sort of reputation which precedes performance, often the larger part of a man's fame. He took a wife, as we have seen, to adorn the remaining quadrant of his course, and be a little moon that would cause hardly a calculable perturbation. But Lydgate was young, poor, ambitious. He had his half-century before him, instead of behind him, and he had come to Middlemarch bent on doing many things that were not directly fitted to make his fortune, or even secure him a good income. To a man under such circumstances, taking a wife is something more than a question of adornment, however highly he may rate this, and Lydgate was disposed to give it the first place among wifely functions. To his taste, guided by a single conversation, here was the point on which Miss Brooke would be found wanting, notwithstanding her undeniable beauty. She did not look at things from the proper feminine angle. The society of such women was about as relaxing 
as going from your work to teach the second form, instead of reclining in a paradise with sweet laughs for bird notes and blue eyes for a heaven. Certainly nothing at present could seem much less important to Lydgate than the turn of Miss Brooke's mind, or to Miss Brooke than the qualities of the woman who had attracted this young surgeon. But any one watching keenly the stealthy convergence of human lots sees a slow preparation of effects from one life on another, which tells like a calculated irony on the indifference or the frozen stare with which we look at our unintroduced neighbor. Destiny stands by sarcastic, with our dramatis personae folded in her hand. Old provincial society had its share of this subtle movement, had not only its striking downfalls, its brilliant young professional dandies, who ended by living up an entry with a drab and six children for their establishment, but also those less marked vicissitudes which are constantly shifting the boundaries of social intercourse, and begetting new consciousness of interdependence. Some slipped a little downward, some got higher footing. People denied aspirates, gained wealth, and fastidious gentlemen stood for boroughs. Some were caught in political currents, some in ecclesiastical, and perhaps found themselves surprisingly grouped in consequence, while a few personages or families that stood with rocky firmness amid all this fluctuation were slowly presenting new aspects in spite of solidity, and altering with the double change of self and beholder. Municipal town and rural parish gradually made few threads of connection. Gradually, as the old stocking gave way to the savings bank, and the worship of the solar guinea became extinct, while squires and baronets, and even lords who had once lived blamelessly afar from the civic mind, gathered the faultiness of closer acquaintanceship. Settlers, too, came from distant counties, some with an alarming novelty of skill, others with an offensive advantage in cunning. In fact, much the same sort of movement and mixture went on in old England, as we find in older Herodotus, who also, in telling what had been, thought it well to take a woman's lot for his starting-point, though, lo, as a maiden apparently beguiled by attractive merchandise, was the reverse of Miss Brooke, and, in this respect, perhaps bore more resemblance to Rosamond Vincy, who had excellent taste in costume, with that nymph-like figure, and pure blondness which give the largest range to choice in the flow and color of drapery. But these things made only part of her charm. She was admitted to be the flower of Mrs. Lemon's school, the chief school in the county, where the teaching included all that was demanded in the accomplished female, even to extras such as the getting in and out of a carriage. Mrs. Lemon herself had always held up Miss Vincy as an example. No pupil, she said, exceeded that young lady for mental acquisition and propriety of speech, while her musical execution was quite exceptional. We cannot help the way in which people speak of us, and probably, if Mrs. Lemon had undertaken to describe Juliet or Imogen, 
these heroines would not have seemed poetical. The first vision of Rosamond would have been enough with most judges to dispel any prejudice excited by Mrs. Lemon's praise. Lydgate could not be long in Middlemarch without having that agreeable vision, or even without making the acquaintance of the Vincy family, for though Mr. Peacock, whose practice he had paid something to enter on, had not been their doctor, Mrs. Vincy not liking the lowering system adopted by him, he had many patients among their connections and acquaintances. For who of any consequence in Middlemarch was not connected, or at least acquainted with the Vincys? They were old manufacturers, and had kept a good house for three generations, in which there had naturally been much intermarrying with neighbors more or less decidedly genteel. Mrs. Vincy's sister had made a wealthy match in accepting Mr. Bulstrode, who, however, as a man not born in the town, and altogether of dimly known origin, was considered to have done well in uniting himself with a real Middlemarch family. On the other hand, Mr. Vincy had descended a little, having taken an innkeeper's daughter. But on this side, too, there was a cheering sense of money, for Mrs. Vincy's sister had been second wife to rich old Mr. Featherstone, and had died childless years ago, so that her nephews and nieces might be supposed to touch the affections of the widower. And it happened that Mr. Bulstrode and Mr. Featherstone, two of Peacock's most important patients, had, from different causes, given an especially good reception to his successor, who had raised some partisanship as well as discussion. Mr. Wrench, medical attendant to the Vincy family, very early had grounds for thinking lightly of Lydgate's professional discretion, and there was no report about him which was not retailed at the Vincy's, where visitors were frequent. Mr. Vincy was more inclined to general good-fellowship than to taking sides, but there was no need for him to be hasty in making any new man's acquaintance. Rosamond silently wished that her father would invite Mr. Lydgate. She was tired of the faces and figures she had always been used to, the various irregular profiles and gaits and turns of phrase distinguishing those Middlemarch young men whom she had known as boys. She had been at school with girls of higher position, whose brothers, she felt sure, it would have been possible for her to be more interested in than in these inevitable Middlemarch companions. But she would not have chosen to mention her wish to her father, and he, for his part, was in no hurry on the subject. An alderman, about to be mayor, must by and by enlarge his dinner parties, but at present there were plenty of guests at his well-spread table. That table often remained covered with the relics of the family breakfast long after Mr. Vincy had gone with his second son to the warehouse, and when Miss Morgan was already far on in morning lessons with the younger girls in the schoolroom. It awaited the family laggard, who found any sort of inconvenience to others less disagreeable than getting up when he was called. This was the case one morning of the October in which we have lately seen Mr. Casaubon visiting the Grange, and though the room was a little overheated with the fire, which had sent the spaniel panting to a remote corner, 
Rosamond, for some reason, continued to sit at her embroidery longer than usual, now and then giving herself a little shake, and laying her work on her knee to contemplate it with an air of hesitating weariness. Her mamma, who had returned from an excursion to the kitchen, sat on the other side of the small work-table with an air of more entire placidity, until, the clock again giving notice that it was going to strike, she looked up from the lace-mending which was occupying her plump fingers, and rang the bell. "'Knock again at Fred's door, Pritchard, and tell him it has struck half-past ten. This was said without any change in the radiant good humour of Mrs. Vincy's face, in which forty-five years had delved neither angles nor parallels, and pushing back her pink cap-strings, she let her work rest on her lap while she looked admiringly at her daughter. Mamma said Rosamond, when Fred comes down, I wish you would not let him have red herrings. I cannot bear the smell of them all over the house at this hour of the morning. Oh, my dear, you are so hard on your brothers. It is the only fault I have to find with you. You are the sweetest temper in the world, but are so tetchy with your brothers. Not tetchy, mamma. You never hear me speak in an unladylike way. Well, you want to deny them things. Brothers are so unpleasant. Oh, my dear, you must allow for young men. Be thankful if they have good hearts. A woman must learn to put up with little things. You will be married some day. Not to anyone who is like Fred. Don't decry your own brother, my dear. Few young men have less against them, although he couldn't take his degree. I'm sure I can't understand why, for he seems to me most clever. And you know yourself he was thought equal to the best society at college. So particular as you are, my dear, I wonder you are not glad to have such a gentlemanly young man for a brother. You are always finding fault with Bob because he is not Fred. Oh, no, mamma, only because he is Bob. Well, dear, you will not find any Middlemarch young man who has not got something against him. But— here Rosamond's face broke into a smile which suddenly revealed two dimples. She herself thought unfavorably of these dimples, and smiled little in general society. But I shall not marry any Middlemarch young man. So it seems, my love, for you have as good as refused the pick of them, and if there's better to be had, I'm sure there's no girl better deserves it. Excuse me, mamma. I wish you would not say the pick of them. Why, what else are they? I mean, mamma, it is rather a vulgar expression. Very likely, my dear, I never was a good speaker. What should I say? The best of them. Why, that seems just as plain and common. If I had had time to think, I should have said, the most superior young men. But with your education you must know. "'What must Rosie know, mother?' said Fred, who had slid unobserved through the half-open door while the ladies were bending over their work, and now going up to the fire stood with his back towards it, warming the soles of his slippers. "'Whether it's right to say superior young men,' said Mrs. Vincy, ringing the bell. "'Oh, there are so many superior teas and sugars now. Superior is getting to be shopkeeper slang.' 
"'Are you beginning to dislike slang, then?' said Rosamond, with mild gravity. "'Only the wrong sort. All choice of words is slang. It marks a class.' "'There is correct English. That is not slang.' "'I beg your pardon. Correct English is the slang of prigs, who write history and essays. And the strongest slang is the slang of poets.' "'You will say anything, Fred, to gain your point.' Well, tell me whether it is slang or poetry to call an ox a leg-plater. Of course, you can call it poetry if you like. Aha, Miss Rosy, you don't know Homer from slang. I shall invent a new game. I shall write bits of slang and poetry on slips, and give them to you to separate. Dear me, how amusing it is to hear young people talk, said Mrs. Vincy, with cheerful admiration. "'Have you got nothing else for my breakfast, Pritchard?' said Fred, to the servant who brought in coffee and buttered toast, while he walked round the table surveying the ham, potted beef, and other cold remnants, with an air of silent rejection, and polite forbearance from signs of disgust. "'Should you like eggs, sir?' "'Eggs? No. Bring me a grilled bone.' "'Really, Fred,' said Rosamond, when the servant had left the room, if you must have hot things for breakfast, I wish you would come down earlier. You can get up at six o'clock to go out hunting. I cannot understand why you find it so difficult to get up on other mornings. That is your want of understanding, Rosy. I can get up to go hunting because I like it. What would you think of me if I came down two hours after everyone else and ordered grilled bone? "'I should think you were an uncommonly fast young lady,' said Fred, eating his toast with the utmost composure. "'I cannot see why brothers are to make themselves disagreeable any more than sisters. "'I don't make myself disagreeable. It is you who find me so. "'Disagreeable is a word that describes your feelings, and not my actions. "'I think it describes the smell of grilled bone.' "'Not at all.' It describes a sensation in your little nose, associated with certain finicking notions which are the classics of Mrs. Lemon's school. Look at my mother. You don't see her objecting to everything except what she does herself. She is my notion of a pleasant woman. Bless you both, my dears, and don't quarrel, said Mrs. Vincy, with a motherly cordiality. Come, Fred, tell us all about the new doctor. How is your uncle pleased with him? Pretty well, I think. He asks Lydgate all sorts of questions, and then screws up his face while he hears the answers, as if they were pinching his toes. That's his way. Ah, here comes my grilled bone. But how came you to stay out so late, my dear? You only said you were going to your uncle's. Oh, I dined at Plymdale's. We had whist. Lydgate was there, too. And what do you think of him? He is very gentlemanly, I suppose. They say he is of excellent family, his relations quite county people. Yes, said Fred. There was a Lydgate at John's who spent no end of money. I find this man is a second cousin of his. But rich men may have very poor devils for second cousins. It always makes a difference, though, to be of good family, said Rosamond, with a tone of decision which showed that she had thought on this subject. Rosamond felt that she might have been happier if she had not been the daughter of a Middlemarch manufacturer. 
she disliked anything which reminded her that her mother's father had been an innkeeper. Certainly any one remembering the fact might think that Mrs. Vincy had the air of a very handsome, good-humoured landlady, accustomed to the most capricious orders of gentlemen. "'I thought it was odd his name was Tertius,' said the bright-faced matron. "'But, of course, it's a name in the family. But now, tell us exactly what sort of man he is.' "'Oh, tallish, dark, clever, talks well, rather a prig, I think.' "'I never can make out what you mean by a prig,' said Rosamond. "'A fellow who wants to show that he has opinions.' "'Why, my dear, doctors must have opinions,' said Mrs. Vincy. "'What are they there for else?' "'Yes, mother, the opinions they are paid for. "'But a prig is a fellow who is always making you a present of his opinions.' "'I suppose Mary Garth admires Mr. Lydgate,' said Rosamond not without a touch of innuendo. "'Really, I can't say,' said Fred, rather glumly, as he left the table, and, taking up a novel which he had brought down with him, threw himself into an armchair. "'If you are jealous of her, go oftener to Stone Court yourself, and eclipse her.' "'I wish you would not be so vulgar, Fred. If you have finished, pray ring the bell.' "'It is true, though, what your brother says, Rosamond.' mrs vincy began when the servant had cleared the table it is a thousand pities you haven't patience to go and see your uncle more so proud of you as he is and wanted you to live with him there's no knowing what he might have done for you as well as for fred god knows i'm fond of having you at home with me but i can part with my children for their good and now it stands to reason that your uncle featherstone will do something for mary garth "'Mary Garth can bear being at Stone Court because she likes that better than being a governess,' said Rosamond, folding up her work. "'I would rather not have anything left to me if I must earn it by enduring much of my uncle's cough and his ugly relations. "'He can't be long for this world, my dear. I wouldn't hasten his end, but what with asthma and that inward complaint, let us hope there is something better for him in another.' and I have no ill-will towards Mary Garth, but there's justice to be thought of, and Mr. Featherstone's first wife brought him no money, as my sister did. Her nieces and nephews can't have so much claim as my sister's. And I must say I think Mary Garth a dreadful plain girl, more fit for a governess. "'Everyone would not agree with you there, mother,' said Fred, who seemed to be able to read and listen, too. "'Well, my dear,' said Mrs. Vincy, wheeling skillfully, "'if she had some fortune left her. "'A man marries his wife's relations, "'and the Garths are so poor, "'and live in such a small way. "'But I shall leave you to your studies, my dear, "'for I must go and do some shopping.' "'Fred's studies are not very deep,' said Rosamond, "'rising with her mamma. "'He is only reading a novel.' "'Well, well, by and by he'll go to his Latin and things,' said Mrs. Vincy, soothingly, stroking her son's head. "'There is a fire in the smoking-room on purpose. It's your father's wish, you know, Fred, my dear. And I always tell him you will be good, and go to college again to take your degree.' Fred drew his mother's hand down to his lips, but said nothing. 
"'I suppose you are not going out riding to-day,' said Rosamond, lingering a little after her mamma was gone. "'No. Why?' "'Papa says I may have the chestnut to ride now.' "'You can go with me to-morrow, if you like. Only I am going to Stone Court, remember.' "'I want the ride so much. It is indifferent to me where we go.' Rosamond really wished to go to Stone Court, of all other places. "'Oh, I say, Rosie,' said Fred, as she was passing out of the room, "'if you are going to the piano, let me come and play some airs with you.' "'Pray do not ask me this morning.' "'Why not this morning?' "'Really, Fred, I wish you would leave off playing the flute. A man looks very silly playing the flute, and you play so out of tune.' "'When next any one makes love to you, Miss Rosamond, I will tell him how obliging you are.' "'Why should you expect me to oblige you by hearing you play the flute any more than I should expect you to oblige me by not playing it?' "'And why should you expect me to take you out riding?' This question led to an adjustment, for Rosamond had set her mind on that particular ride. So Fred was gratified with nearly an hour's practice of "'Ar hid ye nos, ye banks and braes,' and other favorite airs from his instructor on the flute, a wheezy performance into which he threw much ambition and an irrepressible hopefulness. End of chapter 11Chapter 12 of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espyat. He had more toe on his distaff than Gervais knew. Chaucer. The ride to Stone Court, which Fred and Rosamond took the next morning, lay through a pretty bit of midland landscape, almost all meadows and pastures with hedgerows still allowed to grow in bushy beauty and to spread out coral fruit for the birds. Little details gave each field a particular physiognomy, dear to the eyes that have looked on them from childhood. The pool in the corner where the grasses were dank and trees leaned whisperingly, the great oak shadowing a bare place in mid-pasture, the high bank where the ash-trees grew, the sudden slope of the old marl-pit making a red background for the burdock, the huddled roofs and ricks of the homestead without a traceable way of approach, the gray gate and fences against the depths of the bordering wood, and the stray hovel, its old, old thatch full of mossy hills and valleys with wondrous modulations of light and shadow such as we travel far to see in later life, and see larger, but not more beautiful. These are the things that make the gamut of joy in landscape to midland-bred souls, the things they toddled among, or perhaps learned by heart, standing between their father's knees while he drove leisurely. But the road, even the by-road, was excellent, for Lowick, as we have seen, was not a parish of muddy lanes and poor tenants, and it was into Lowick Parish that Fred and Rosamond entered after a couple of miles riding. Another mile would bring them to Stone Court, and at the end of the first half the house was already visible, looking as if it had been arrested in its growth toward a stone mansion 
by an unexpected budding of farm buildings on its left flank, which had hindered it from becoming anything more than the substantial dwelling of a gentleman farmer. It was not the less agreeable an object in the distance for the cluster of pinnacled corn-ricks which balanced the fine row of walnuts on the right. Presently it was possible to discern something that might be a gig on the circular drive before the front door. "'Dear me,' said Rosamond, "'I hope none of my uncle's horrible relations are there.' "'They are, though. That is Mrs. Wall's gig. The last yellow gig left, I should think. When I see Mrs. Wall in it, I understood how yellow can have been worn for mourning. That gig seems to me more funereal than a hearse.' But then Mrs. Wall always has black crape on. How does she manage it, Rosie? Her friends can't always be dying. I don't know at all. And she is not in the least evangelical, said Rosamond, reflectively, as if that religious point of view would have fully accounted for the perpetual crape. And not poor, she added, after a moment's pause. No, by George, they are as rich as Jews, those walls and featherstones. I mean, for people like them who don't want to spend anything. And yet they hang about my uncle like vultures, and are afraid of a farthing going away from their side of the family. But I believe he hates them all. The Mrs. Wall, who was so far from being admirable in the eyes of these distant connections, had happened to say this very morning, not at all with a defiant air, but in a low, muffled, neutral tone, as of a voice heard through cotton wool, that she did not wish to enjoy their good opinion. She was seated, as she observed, on her own brother's hearth, and had been Jane Featherstone five and twenty years before she had been Jane Wall, which entitled her to speak when her own brother's name had been made free with by those who had no right to it. "'What are you driving at there?' said Mr. Featherstone, holding his stick between his knees and settling his wig while he gave her a momentary sharp glance, which seemed to react on him like a draught of cold air and set him coughing. Mrs. Wall had to defer her answer till he was quiet again, till Mary Garth had supplied him with fresh syrup, and he had begun to rub the gold knob of his stick, looking bitterly at the fire. It was a bright fire, but it made no difference to the chill-looking purplish tint of Mrs. Wall's face which was as neutral as her voice, having mere chinks for eyes, and lips that hardly moved in speaking. "'The doctors can't master that cough, brother. It's just like what I have, for I'm your own sister, constitution and everything. But, as I was saying, it's a pity Mrs. Vincy's family can't be better conducted.' "'Tchah! You said nothing of the sort. You said somebody had made free with my name.' and no more than can be proved, if what everybody says is true. My brother Solomon tells me it's the talk up and down in Middlemarch how unsteady young Vincy is, and has been forever gambling at billiards since home he came. Nonsense! What's a game at billiards? It's a good, gentlemanly game, and young Vincy is not a clodhopper. If your son John took to billiards now, he'd make a fool of himself." "'Your nephew John never took to billiards or any other game, brother, and is far from losing hundreds of pounds, which, if what everybody says is true, must be found somewhere else than out of Mr. Vincy, the father's pocket. 
for they say he's been losing money for years, though nobody would think so, to see him go coursing and keeping open house as they do. And I've heard say Mr. Bulstrode condemns Mrs. Vincy beyond anything for her flightiness, and spoiling her children so. What's Bulstrode to me? I don't bank with him. Well, Mrs. Bulstrode is Mr. Vincy's own sister, and they do say that Mr. Vincy mostly trades on the bank money. And you may see yourself, brother, when a woman past forty has pink strings always flying, and that light way of laughing at everything. It's very unbecoming. But indulging your children is one thing, and finding money to pay their debts is another. And it's openly said that young Vincy has raised money on his expectations. I don't say what expectations. Miss Garth hears me, and is welcome to tell again. I know young people hang together. No, thank you, Mrs. Wall, said Mary Garth. I dislike hearing scandal too much to wish to repeat it. Mr. Featherstone rubbed the knob of his stick and made a brief convulsive show of laughter, which had much the same genuineness as an old whist-player's chuckle over a bad hand. Still looking at the fire, he said, "'And who pretends to say that Fred Vincy hasn't got expectations? Such a fine-spirited fellow is like enough to have him. There was a slight pause before Mrs. Wall replied, and when she did so, her voice seemed to be slightly moistened with tears, though her face was still dry. "'Whether or no, brother, it is naturally painful to me and my brother Solomon to hear your name made free with, and your complaint being such as may carry you off sudden, and people who are no more featherstones than the Mary Andrew at the fair openly reckoning on your property coming to them, and me your own sister, and Solomon your own brother. And if that's to be it, what has it pleased the Almighty to make families for?' Here Mrs. Wall's tears fell, but with moderation. "'Come, out with it, Jane,' said Mr. Featherstone, looking at her. "'You mean to say Fred Vincy has been getting somebody to advance him money on what he says he knows about my will, eh?' "'I never said so, brother.' Mrs. Wall's voice had again become dry and unshaken. "'It was told me by my brother Solomon last night when he called coming from market to give me advice about the old wheat, me being a widow, and my son John only three-and-twenty, though steady beyond anything, and he had it from most undeniable authority, and not one but many. Stuff and nonsense! I don't believe a word of it. It's all a got-up story. Go to the window, Missy. I thought I heard a horse. See if the doctor's coming." Not got up by me, brother, nor yet by Solomon, who, whatever else he may be, and I don't deny he has oddities, has made his will and parted his property equal between such kin as he's friends with, though, for my part, I think there are times when some should be considered more than others. But Solomon makes it no secret what he means to do. The more fool he, said Mr. Featherstone, with some difficulty, breaking into a severe fit of coughing that required Mary Garth to stand near him, so that she did not find out whose horses they were which presently paused, stamping on the gravel before the door. Before Mr. Featherstone's cough was quiet, Rosamond entered, 
bearing up her riding habit with much grace. She bowed ceremoniously to Mrs. Wall, who said stiffly, "'How do you do, miss?' smiled and nodded silently to Mary, and remained standing till the coughing should cease and allow her uncle to notice her. "'Hey, day, miss,' he said at last. "'You have a fine color. Where's Fred?' "'Seeing about the horses. He will be in presently.' "'Sit down, sit down. Mrs. Wall, you'd better go.' Even those neighbors who had called Peter Featherstone an old fox had never accused him of being insincerely polite, and his sister was quite used to the peculiar absence of ceremony with which he marked his sense of blood relationship. Indeed, she herself was accustomed to think that entire freedom from the necessity of behaving agreeably was included in the Almighty's intentions about families. She rose slowly, without any sign of resentment, and said in her usual muffled monotone, "'Brother, I hope the new doctor will be able to do something for you. Solomon says there's great talk of his cleverness. I'm sure it's my wish you should be spared. And there's none more ready to nurse you than your own sister and your own nieces, if you'd only say the word. There's Rebecca and Joanna.' and Elizabeth, you know. Aye, aye, I remember. You'll see I've remembered them all, all dark and ugly. They'd need have some money, eh? There never was any beauty in the women of our family, but the Featherstones have always had some money, and the Walls, too. Wall had money, too. A warm man was Wall. Aye, aye, money's a good egg, and if you've got money to leave behind you, lay it in a warm nest. Good-bye, Mrs. Wall. Here Mr. Featherstone pulled at both sides of his wig as if he wanted to deafen himself, and his sister went away ruminating on this oracular speech of his. Notwithstanding her jealousy of the Vincys and of Mary Garth, there remained as the nethermost sediment in her mental shallows a persuasion that her brother Peter Featherstone could never leave his chief property away from his blood relations, else why had the Almighty carried off his two wives, both childless, after he had gained so much by manganese and things, turning up when nobody expected it? And why was there a Lowick parish church, and the Walls and Powderells, all sitting in the same pew for generations, and the Featherstone pew next to them, if, the Sunday after her brother Peter's death, everybody was to know that the property was gone out of the family? The human mind has at no period accepted a moral chaos, and so preposterous a result was not strictly conceivable. But we are frightened at much that is not strictly conceivable. When Fred came in, the old man eyed him with a peculiar twinkle, which the younger had often had reason to interpret as pride in the satisfactory details of his appearance. "'You two misses go away,' said Mr. Featherstone. I want to speak to Fred. Come into my room, Rosamond. You will not mind the cold for a little while, said Mary. The two girls had not only known each other in childhood, but had been at the same provincial school together, Mary as an articled pupil, so that they had many memories in common, and liked very well to talk in private. Indeed, this tete-a-tete was one of Rosamond's objects in coming to Stone Court. Old Featherstone would not begin the dialogue till the door had been closed. 
he continued to look at Fred with the same twinkle and with one of his habitual grimaces, alternately screwing and widening his mouth, and when he spoke it was in a low tone, which might be taken for that of an informer ready to be bought off, rather than for the tone of an offended senior. He was not a man to feel any strong moral indignation even on account of trespasses against himself. It was natural that others should want to get an advantage over him, but then he was a little too cunning for them. "'So, sir, you've been paying ten per cent for money which you've promised to pay off by mortgaging my land when I'm dead and gone, eh? You put my life at a twelve-month, say. But I can alter my will yet.' Fred blushed. He had not borrowed money in that way, for excellent reasons. But he was conscious of having spoken with some confidence, perhaps with more than he exactly remembered, about his prospect of getting Featherstone's land as a future means of paying present debts. I don't know what you refer to, sir. I have certainly never borrowed any money on such an insecurity. Please to explain. No, sir, it's you must explain. I can alter my will yet, let me tell you. I'm of sound mind, can reckon compound interest in my head, and remember every fool's name as well as I could twenty years ago. What the deuce! I'm under eighty. I say, you must contradict this story. I have contradicted it, sir, Fred answered, with a touch of impatience, not remembering that his uncle did not verbally discriminate contradicting from disproving though no one was further from confounding the two ideas than old Featherstone, who often wondered that so many fools took his own assertions for proofs. But I contradict it again. The story is a silly lie. Nonsense. You must bring documents. It comes from authority. Name the authority, and make him name the man of whom I borrowed the money, and then I can disprove the story." It's pretty good authority, I think. A man who knows most of what goes on in Middlemarch. It's that fine, religious, charitable uncle of yours. Come now. Here Mr. Featherstone had his peculiar inward shake, which signified merriment. Mr. Bulstrode? Who else, eh? Then the story has grown into this lie out of some sermonizing words he may have let fall about me. Do they pretend that he named the man who lent me the money? If there is such a man, depend upon it, Bulstrode knows him. But supposing you only tried to get the money lent, and didn't get it, Bulstrode would know that too. You bring me a writing from Bulstrode to say he doesn't believe you've ever promised to pay your debts out of my land. Come now. Mr. Featherstone's face required its whole scale of grimaces as a muscular outlet to his silent triumph in the soundness of his faculties. Fred felt himself to be in a disgusting dilemma. "'You must be joking, sir. Mr. Bulstrode, like other men, believes scores of things that are not true, and he has a prejudice against me. I could easily get him to write that he knew no facts in proof of the report you speak of, though it might lead to unpleasantness.' but I could hardly ask him to write down what he believes or does not believe about me. Fred paused an instant, and then added, in politic appeal to his uncle's vanity, 
that is hardly a thing for a gentleman to ask but he was disappointed in the result ay I, I know what you mean you'd sooner offend me than bulstrode and what's he he's got no land hereabout that ever i heard tell of a speculating fellow he may come down any day when the devil leaves off backing him and that's what his religion means he wants god almighty to come in that's nonsense there's one thing i made out pretty clear when i used to go to church and it's this god almighty sticks to the land he promises land and he gives land and he makes chaps rich with corn and cattle but you take the other side you like bulstrode and speculation better than featherstone and land i beg your pardon sir said fred rising standing with his back to the fire and beating his boot with his whip i like neither bulstrode nor speculation he spoke rather sulkily feeling himself stalemated well well you can do without me that's pretty clear said old featherstone secretly disliking the possibility that fred would show himself at all independent you neither want a bit of land to make a squire of you instead of a starving parson nor a lift of a hundred pound by the way it's all one to me i can make five codicils if i like and shall keep my bank notes for a nest egg it's all one to me fred colored again featherstone had rarely given him presents of money and at this moment it seemed almost harder to part with the immediate prospect of banknotes than with the more distant prospect of the land. "'I am not ungrateful, sir. I never meant to show disregard for any kind intentions you might have towards me. On the contrary.' "'Very good. Then prove it. You bring me a letter from Bulstrode saying he doesn't believe you've been cracking and promising to pay your debts out of my land. And then—' if there's any scrape you've got into we'll see if i can back you a bit come now that's a bargain here give me your arm i'll try and walk around the room fred in spite of his irritation had kindness enough in him to be a little sorry for the unloved unvenerated old man who with his dropsical legs looked more than usually pitiable in walking while giving his arm he thought that he should not himself like to be an old fellow with his constitution breaking up, and he waited good-temperedly, first before the window to hear the wanted remarks about the guinea-fowls and the weathercock, and then before the scanty bookshelves, of which the chief glories in dark calf were Josephus, Culpepper, Klopstock's Messiah, and several volumes of the Gentleman's Magazine. "'Read me the names of the books.' come now you're a college man fred gave him the titles what did missy want with more books what must you be bringing her more books for they amuse her sir she's very fond of reading a little too fond said mr featherstone captiously she was for reading when she sat with me but i put a stop to that she's got the newspaper to read out loud that's enough for one day i should think I can't abide to see her reading to herself. You mind and not bring her any more books, do you hear? Yes, sir, I hear. Fred had received this order before, and had secretly disobeyed it. He intended to disobey it again. Ring the bell, said Mr. Featherstone. 
I want Missy to come down. Rosamond and Mary had been talking faster than their male friends. They did not think of sitting down, but stood at the toilette table near the window, while Rosamond took off her hat, adjusted her veil, and applied little touches of her fingertips to her hair, hair of infantine fairness, neither flaxen nor yellow. Mary Garth seemed all the plainer standing at an angle between the two nymphs, the one in the glass and the one out of it, who looked at each other with eyes of heavenly blue, deep enough to hold the most exquisite meanings an ingenious beholder could put into them, and deep enough to hide the meanings of the owner if these should happen to be less exquisite. Only a few children in Middlemarch looked blonde by the side of Rosamond, and the slim figure displayed by her riding habit had delicate undulations. In fact, most men in Middlemarch, except her brothers, held that Miss Vincy was the best girl in the world, and some called her an angel. Mary Garth, on the contrary, had the aspect of an ordinary sinner. She was brown, her curly dark hair was rough and stubborn, her stature was low, and it would not be true to declare in satisfactory antithesis that she had all the virtues. Plainness has its peculiar temptations and vices quite as much as beauty. It is apt either to feign amiability or, not feigning it, to show all the repulsiveness of discontent. At any rate, to be called an ugly thing in contrast with that lovely creature, your companion, is apt to produce some effect beyond a sense of fine veracity and fitness in the phrase. At the age of two and twenty, Mary had certainly not attained that perfect good sense and good principle which are usually recommended to the less fortunate girl, as if they were to be obtained in quantities ready mixed, with a flavor of resignation as required. Her shrewdness had a streak of satiric bitterness, continually renewed, and never carried utterly out of sight, except by a strong current of gratitude towards those who, instead of telling her that she ought to be contented, did something to make her so. Advancing womanhood had tempered her plainness, which was of a good human sort, such as the mothers of our race have very commonly worn in all latitudes under a more or less becoming headgear. Rembrandt would have painted her with pleasure, and would have made her broad features look out of the canvas with intelligent honesty. For honesty, truth-telling fairness, was Mary's reigning virtue. She neither tried to create illusions, nor indulged in them for her own behoof, and when she was in a good mood she had humor enough in her to laugh at herself. When she and Rosamond happened both to be reflected in the glass, she said laughingly, "'What a brown patch I am by the side of you, Rosy. You are the most becoming companion.' "'Oh, no. No one thinks of your appearance. You are so sensible and useful, Mary. Beauty is of very little consequence in reality,' said Rosamond, turning her head towards Mary, but with eyes swerving towards the new view of her neck in the glass. "'You mean my beauty,' said Mary, rather sardonically. Rosamond thought, "'Poor Mary, she takes the kindest things ill.' Aloud she said, "'What have you been doing lately?' "'I, oh, minding the house, pouring out syrup, pretending to be amiable and contented. 
learning to have a bad opinion of everybody. It is a wretched life for you. No, said Mary, curtly, with a little toss of her head. I think my life is pleasanter than your Miss Morgan's. Yes, but Miss Morgan is so uninteresting and not young. She is interesting to herself, I suppose, and I am not all sure that everything gets easier as one gets older. No, said Rosamond reflectively. One wonders what such people do without any prospect. To be sure, there is religion as a support. But, she added, dimpling, it is very different with you, Mary. You may have an offer. Has anyone told you he means to make me one? Of course not. I mean, there is a gentleman who may fall in love with you, seeing you almost every day. A certain change in Mary's face was chiefly determined by the resolve not to show any change. Does that always make people fall in love? she answered carelessly. It seems to me quite as often a reason for detesting each other. Not when they are interesting and agreeable. I hear that Mr. Lydgate is both. Oh, Mr. Lydgate, said Mary, with an unmistakable lapse into indifference. You want to know something about him, she added, not choosing to indulge Rosamond's indirectness. Merely how you like him. There is no question of liking at present. My liking always wants some little kindness to kindle it. I am not magnanimous enough to like people who speak to me without seeming to see me. Is he so haughty? said Rosamond, with heightened satisfaction. You know that he is of good family? No, he did not give that as a reason. Mary, you are the oddest girl. But what sort of looking man is he? Describe him to me. How can one describe a man? I can give you an inventory. Heavy eyebrows, dark eyes, a straight nose, thick dark hair, large solid white hands, and, let me see, oh, an exquisite cambric pocket-handkerchief. But you will see him. You know this is about the time of his visits. Rosamond blushed a little, but said meditatively, I rather like a haughty manner. I cannot endure a rattling young man. I did not tell you that Mr. Lydgate was haughty. But il y en a pour tous les goûts, as little Mamselle used to say, and if any girl can choose the particular sort of conceit she would like, I should think it is you, Rosie. Haughtiness is not conceit. I call Fred conceited. I wish no one said any worse of him. He should be more careful. Mrs. Wall has been telling Uncle that Fred is very unsteady. Mary spoke from a girlish impulse which got the better of her judgment. There was a vague uneasiness associated with the word unsteady, which she hoped Rosamond might say something to dissipate. But she purposely abstained from mentioning Mrs. Wall's more special insinuation. "'Oh, Fred is horrid,' said Rosamond. She would not have allowed herself so unsuitable a word to anyone but Mary. "'What do you mean by horrid?' He is so idle, and makes papa so angry, and says he will not take orders. I think Fred is quite right. How can you say he is quite right, Mary? I thought you had more sense of religion. He is not fit to be a clergyman. But he ought to be fit. Well, then, he is not what he ought to be. I know some other people who are in the same case. But no one approves of them. 
I should not like to marry a clergyman, but there must be clergymen. It does not follow that Fred must be one. But when papa has been at the expense of educating him for it, and only suppose if he should have no fortune left him. I can suppose that very well, said Mary, dryly. Then I wonder you can defend Fred, said Rosamond, inclined to push this point. I don't defend him, said Mary, laughing. I would defend any parish from having him for a clergyman. But, of course, if he were a clergyman, he must be different. Yes, he would be a great hypocrite, and he is not that yet. It is of no use saying anything to you, Mary. You always take Fred's part. Why should I not take his part? said Mary, lighting up. He would take mine. He is the only person who takes the least trouble to oblige me. You make me feel very uncomfortable, Mary, said Rosamond, with her gravest mildness. I would not tell Mamma for the world. What would you not tell her? said Mary, angrily. Pray do not go into a rage, Mary, said Rosamond, mildly as ever. If your mamma is afraid that Fred will make me an offer, tell her that I would not marry him if he asked me. But he is not going to do so that I am aware. He certainly never has asked me. Mary, you are always so violent. And you are always so exasperating. I, what can you blame me for? Oh, blameless people are always the most exasperating. There's the bell. I think we must go down. I did not mean to quarrel, said Rosamond, putting on her hat. Quarrel? Nonsense. We have not quarreled. If one is not to get into a rage sometimes, what is the good of being friends? Am I to repeat what you have said? Just as you please. I never say what I am afraid of having repeated. But let us go down. Mr. Lydgate was rather late this morning, but the visitors stayed long enough to see him, for Mr. Featherstone asked Rosamond to sing to him, and she herself was so kind as to propose a second favorite song of his, Flow on, thou shining river, after she had sung Home, Sweet Home, which she detested. This hard-headed old overreach approved of the sentimental song as the suitable garnish for girls, and also as fundamentally fine, sentiment being the right thing for a song. Mr. Featherstone was still applauding the last performance, and assuring Missy that her voice was as clear as a blackbird's, when Mr. Lydgate's horse passed the window. His dull expectation of the usual disagreeable routine with an aged patient, who can hardly believe that medicine would not set him up if the doctor were only clever enough, added to his general disbelief in Middlemarch charms, made a doubly effective background to this vision of Rosamond, whom old Mr. Featherstone made haste ostentatiously to introduce as his niece, though he had never thought it worth while to speak of Mary Garth in that light. Nothing escaped Lydgate in Rosamond's graceful behavior. How delicately she waved the notice which the old man's want of taste had thrust upon her by a quiet gravity, not showing her dimples on the wrong occasion, but showing them afterwards in speaking to Mary, to whom she addressed herself with so much good-natured interest that Lydgate, after quickly examining Mary more fully than he had done before, saw an adorable kindness in Rosamond's eyes. But Mary, from some cause, looked rather out of temper. 
"'Miss Rosy has been singing me a song. "'You've nothing to say against her, eh, doctor?' said Mr. Featherstone. "'I like it better than your physic.' "'That has made me forget how the time was going,' said Rosamond, rising to reach her hat, which she had laid aside before singing, so that her flower-like head on its white stem was seen in perfection above her riding-habit. "'Fred, we must really go.' "'Very good,' said Fred, who had his own reasons for not being in the best spirits, and wanted to get away. "'Miss Vincy is a musician,' said Lydgate, following her with his eyes. Every nerve and muscle in Rosamond was adjusted to the consciousness that she was being looked at. She was by nature an actress of parts that entered into her physique. She even acted her own character, and so well that she did not know it to be precisely her own. "'The best in Middlemarch, I'll be bound,' said Mr. Featherstone. "'Let the next be who she will. Eh, Fred? Speak up for your sister.' "'I'm afraid I'm out of court, sir. My evidence would be good for nothing.' "'Middlemarch has not got a very high standard, uncle,' said Rosamond, with a pretty lightness, going towards her whip, which lay at a distance. Lydgate was quick in anticipating her. He reached the whip before she did, and turned to present it to her. She bowed and looked at him. He, of course, was looking at her, and their eyes met with that peculiar meeting which is never arrived at by effort, but seems like a sudden divine clearance of haze. I think Lydgate turned a little paler than usual, but Rosamond blushed deeply, and felt a certain astonishment. After that she was really anxious to go, and did not know what sort of stupidity her uncle was talking of when she went to shake hands with him. Yet this result, which she took to be a mutual impression, called falling in love, was just what Rosamond had contemplated beforehand. Ever since that important new arrival in Middlemarch, she had woven a little future, of which something like this scene was the necessary beginning. Strangers, whether wrecked and clinging to a raft, or duly escorted and accompanied by portmanteaus, have always had a circumstantial fascination for the virgin mind, against which native merit has urged itself in vain and a stranger was absolutely necessary to Rosamond's social romance, which had always turned on a lover and bridegroom who was not a middle-marcher, and who had no connections at all like her own. Of late, indeed, the construction seemed to demand that he should somehow be related to a baronet. Now that she and the stranger had met, reality proved much more moving than anticipation and Rosamond could not doubt that this was the great epoch of her life. She judged of her own symptoms as those of awakening love, and she held it still more natural that Mr. Lydgate should have fallen in love at first sight of her. These things happened so often at balls, and why not by the morning light, when the complexion showed all the better for it? Rosamond, though no older than Mary, was rather used to be fallen in love with, but she, for her part, had remained indifferent and fastidiously critical towards both fresh sprig and faded bachelor. And here was Mr. Lydgate, suddenly corresponding to her ideal, being altogether foreign to Middlemarch, carrying a certain air of distinction 
congruous with good family, and possessing connections which offered vistas of that middle-class heaven, rank, a man of talent, also, whom it would be especially delightful to enslave. In fact, a man who had touched her nature quite newly, and brought a vivid interest into her life, which was better than any fancied might be, such as she was in the habit of opposing to the actual. Thus, in riding home, both the brother and sister were preoccupied and inclined to be silent. Rosamond, whose basis for her structure had the usual airy slightness, was of remarkably detailed and realistic imagination when the foundation had been once presupposed, and before they had ridden a mile she was far on in the costume and introductions of her wedded life, having determined on her house in Middlemarch, and foreseen the visits she would pay to her husband's high-bred relatives at a distance, whose finished manners she could appropriate as thoroughly as she had done her school accomplishments, preparing herself thus for vaguer elevations which might ultimately come. There was nothing financial, still less sordid, in her provisions. She cared about what were considered refinements, and not about the money that was to pay for them. Fred's mind, on the other hand, was busy with an anxiety which even his ready hopefulness could not immediately quell. He saw no way of eluding Featherstone's stupid demand without incurring consequences which he liked less even than the task of fulfilling it. His father was already out of humor with him, and would be still more so if he were the occasion of any additional coolness between his own family and the Bulstrodes. Then he himself hated having to go and speak to his uncle Bulstrode, and perhaps after drinking wine he had said many foolish things about Featherstone's property, and these had been magnified by report. Fred felt that he made a wretched figure as a fellow who bragged about expectations from a queer old miser like Featherstone, and went to beg for certificates at his bidding. But those expectations. He really had them, and he saw no agreeable alternative if he gave them up. Besides, he had lately made a debt which galled him extremely, and old Featherstone had almost bargained to pay it off. The whole affair was miserably small. His debts were small. Even his expectations were not anything so very magnificent." Fred had known men to whom he would have been ashamed of confessing the smallness of his scrapes. Such ruminations naturally produced a streak of misanthropic bitterness. To be born the son of a Middlemarch manufacturer, and inevitable heir to nothing in particular, while such men as Mainwaring and Vian, certainly life was a poor business, when a spirited young fellow, with a good appetite for the best of everything, had so poor an outlook. It had not occurred to Fred that the introduction of Bulstrode's name in the matter was a fiction of old Featherstone's, nor could this have made any difference to his position. He saw plainly enough that the old man wanted to exercise his power by tormenting him a little, and also probably to get some satisfaction out of seeing him on unpleasant terms with Bulstrode. Fred fancied that he saw to the bottom of his Uncle Featherstone's soul, though in reality half what he saw there was no more than the reflex of his own inclinations. 
the difficult task of knowing another's soul is not for young gentlemen whose consciousness is chiefly made up of their own wishes fred's main point of debate with himself was whether he should tell his father or try to get through the affair without his father's knowledge it was probably mrs wall who had been talking about him and if mary garth had repeated mrs wall's report to rosamond it would be sure to reach his father who would as surely question him about it he said to rosamond as they slackened their pace rosy did mary tell you that mrs wall had said anything about me yes indeed she did what that you were very unsteady was that all i should think that was enough fred are you sure she said no more mary mentioned nothing else but really fred i think you ought to be ashamed oh fudge don't lecture me what did mary say about it i'm not obliged to tell you you care so very much what mary says and you are too rude to allow me to speak of course i care what mary says she's the best girl i know i should never have thought she was a girl to fall in love with how do you know what men would fall in love with girls never know at least fred let me advise you not to fall in love with her for she says she would not marry you if you asked her she might have waited till i did ask her i knew it would nettle you fred not at all she would not have said so if you had not provoked her before reaching home fred concluded that he would tell the whole affair as simply as possible to his father who might perhaps take on himself the unpleasant business of speaking to bulstrode End of chapter twelve Chapter thirteen of Middlemarch. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espyat. Middlemarch by George Eliot. Chapter thirteen. First gentleman, how class your man as better than the most, or seeming better, worse beneath that cloak, as saint or knave? pilgrim or hypocrite second gentleman nay tell me how you class your wealth of books the drifted relics of all time as well sort them at once by size and livery vellum tall copies and the common calf will hardly cover more diversity than all your labels cunningly devised to class your unread authors in consequence of what he had heard from fred Mr. Vincy determined to speak with Mr. Bulstrode in his private room at the bank at half-past one, when he was usually free from other callers. But a visitor had come in at one o'clock, and Mr. Bulstrode had so much to say to him that there was little chance of the interview being over in half an hour. The banker's speech was fluent, but it was also copious, and he used up an appreciable amount of time in brief meditative pauses. Do not imagine his sickly aspect to have been of the yellow, black-haired sort. He had a pale blond skin, thin, gray-besprinkled brown hair, light gray eyes, and a large forehead. Loud men called his subdued tone an undertone, and sometimes implied that it was inconsistent with openness. 
though there seems to be no reason why a loud man should not be given to concealment of anything except his own voice, unless it can be shown that Holy Writ has placed the seat of candor in the lungs. Mr. Bulstrode also had a deferential bending attitude in listening, and an apparently fixed attentiveness in his eyes which made those persons who thought themselves worth hearing infer that he was seeking the utmost improvement from their discourse. Others, who expected to make no great figure, disliked this kind of moral lantern turned on them. If you are not proud of your cellar, there is no thrill of satisfaction in seeing your guest hold up his wine-glass to the light and look judicial. Such joys are reserved for conscious merit. Hence, Mr. Bulstrode's close attention was not agreeable to the publicans and sinners in Middlemarch. It was attributed by some to his being a Pharisee, and by others to his being evangelical. Less superficial reasoners among them wished to know who his father and grandfather were, observing that five-and-twenty years ago nobody had ever heard of a Bulstrode in Middlemarch. To his present visitor, Lydgate, the scrutinizing look was a matter of indifference. He simply formed an unfavorable opinion of the banker's constitution, and concluded that he had an eager inward life, with little enjoyment of tangible things. "'I shall be exceedingly obliged if you will look in on me here occasionally, Mr. Lydgate,' the banker observed after a brief pause. "'If, as I dare to hope, I have the privilege of finding you a valuable coadjutor in the interesting matter of hospital management. There will be many questions which we shall need to discuss in private. As to the new hospital, which is nearly finished, I shall consider what you have said about the advantages of the special destination for fevers. The decision will rest with me, for though Lord Medlicote has given the land and timber for the building, he is not disposed to give his personal attention to the object. "'There are few things better worth the pains in a provincial town like this,' said Lydgate. "'A fine fever hospital in addition to the old infirmary might be the nucleus of a medical school here, when once we get our medical reforms. And what would do more for medical education than the spread of such schools over the country? A born provincial man who has a grain of public spirit, as well as a few ideas, should do what he can to resist the rush of everything that is a little better than common towards London. Any valid professional aims may often find a freer, if not a richer, field in the provinces. One of Lydgate's gifts was a voice habitually deep and sonorous, yet capable of becoming very low and gentle at the right moment. About his ordinary bearing there was a certain fling, a fearless expectation of success, a confidence in his own powers and integrity much fortified by contempt for petty obstacles or seductions of which he had no experience. But this proud openness was made lovable by an expression of unaffected goodwill. Mr. Bulstrode perhaps liked him better for the difference between them in pitch and manners. He certainly liked him the better, as Rosamond did, for being a stranger in Middlemarch. One can begin so many things with a new person, even begin to be a better man. "'I shall rejoice to furnish your zeal with fuller opportunities,' Mr. Bulstrode answered. "'I mean, by confiding to you the superintendence of my new hospital, should a maturer knowledge favor that issue, for I am determined that so great an object 
shall not be shackled by our two physicians. Indeed, I am encouraged to consider your advent to this town as a gracious indication that a more manifest blessing is now to be awarded to my efforts, which have hitherto been much withstood. With regard to the old infirmary, we have gained the initial point. I mean your election. And now I hope you will not shrink from incurring a certain amount of jealousy and dislike from your professional brethren by presenting yourself as a reformer. I will not profess bravery, said Lydgate, smiling, but I acknowledge a good deal of pleasure in fighting, and I should not care for my profession if I did not believe that better methods were to be found and enforced there as well as everywhere else. The standard of that profession is low in Middlemarch, my dear sir, said the banker. I mean in knowledge and skill, not in social status, for our medical men are most of them connected with respectable townspeople here. My own imperfect health has induced me to give some attention to those palliative resources which the divine mercy has placed within our reach. I have consulted eminent men in the metropolis, and am painfully aware of the backwardness under which medical treatment labors in our provincial districts. Yes, with our present medical rules and education, one must be satisfied now and then to meet with a fair practitioner. As to all the higher questions which determine the starting point of a diagnosis, as to the philosophy of medical evidence, any glimmering of these can only come from a scientific culture of which country practitioners have usually no more notion than the man in the moon. Mr. Bulstrode, bending and looking intently, found the form which Lydgate had given to his agreement not quite suited to his comprehension. Under such circumstances, a judicious man changes the topic and enters on ground where his own gifts may be more useful. I am aware, he said, that the peculiar bias of medical ability is towards material means. Nevertheless, Mr. Lydgate, I hope we shall not vary in sentiment as to a measure in which you are not likely to be actively concerned, but in which your sympathetic concurrence may be an aid to me. You recognize, I hope, the existence of spiritual interests in your patients? Certainly I do. But those words are apt to cover different meanings to different minds. Precisely. And on such subjects, wrong teaching is as fatal as no teaching. Now, a point which I have much at heart to secure is a new regulation as to clerical attendance at the old infirmary. The building stands in Mr. Fairbrother's parish. You know Mr. Fairbrother? I have seen him. He gave me his vote. I must call to thank him. He seems a very bright, pleasant little fellow, and I understand he is a naturalist. Mr. Fairbrother, my dear sir, is a man deeply painful to contemplate. I suppose there is not a clergyman in this country who has greater talents. Mr. Bulstrode paused and looked meditative. I have not yet been pained by finding any excessive talent in Middlemarch said Lydgate, bluntly. "'What I desire,' Mr. Bulstrode continued, looking still more serious, "'is that Mr. Fairbrother's attendance at the hospital should be superseded by the appointment of a chaplain—of Mr. Tyke, in fact—and that no other spiritual aid should be called in.' 
"'As a medical man, I could have no opinion on such a point unless I knew Mr. Tyke, and even then I should require to know the cases in which he was applied,' Lydgate smiled, but he was bent on being circumspect. "'Of course you cannot enter fully into the merits of this measure at present. But—' here Mr. Bulstrode began to speak with a more chiseled emphasis— the subject is likely to be referred to the medical board of the infirmary. And what I trust I may ask of you is, that in virtue of the cooperation between us which I now look forward to, you will not, so far as you are concerned, be influenced by my opponents in this matter. I hope I shall have nothing to do with clerical disputes, said Lydgate. The path I have chosen is to work well in my own profession." My responsibility, Mr. Lydgate, is of a broader kind. With me, indeed, this question is one of sacred accountableness, whereas with my opponents I have good reason to say that it is an occasion for gratifying a spirit of worldly opposition. But I shall not therefore drop one iota of my convictions, or cease to identify myself with that truth which an evil generation hates." I have devoted myself to this object of hospital improvement, but I will boldly confess to you, Mr. Lydgate, that I should have no interest in hospitals if I believed that nothing more was concerned therein than the cure of mortal diseases. I have another ground of action, and in the face of persecution I will not conceal it. Mr. Bulstrode's voice had become a loud and agitated whisper as he said the last words. "'Then we certainly differ,' said Lydgate. But he was not sorry that the door was now opened, and Mr. Vincy was announced. That florid, sociable personage was becoming more interesting to him since he had seen Rosamond. Not that, like her, he had been weaving any future in which their lots were united, but a man naturally remembers a charming girl with pleasure— and is willing to dine where he may see her again. Before he took leave, Mr. Vincy had given that invitation which he had been in no hurry about, for Rosamond at breakfast had mentioned that she thought her uncle Featherstone had taken the new doctor into great favor. Mr. Bulstrode, alone with his brother-in-law, poured himself out a glass of water and opened a sandwich-box. "'I cannot persuade you to adopt my regimen, Vincy.' "'No, no, I've no opinion on that system. Life wants padding,' said Mr. Vincy, unable to omit his portable theory. "'However,' he went on, accenting the word, as if to dismiss all irrelevance, "'what I came here to talk about was a little affair of my young scapegrace, Fred's.' "'That is a subject on which you and I are likely to take quite as different views as on diet, Vincy.' "'I hope not this time.' Mr. Vincy was resolved to be good-humoured. The fact is, it's about a whim of old Featherstone's. Somebody has been cooking up a story out of spite, and telling it to the old man to try to set him against Fred. He's very fond of Fred, and is likely to do something handsome for him. Indeed, he has as good as told Fred that he means to leave him his land, and that makes other people jealous. Vincy, I must repeat— that you will not get any concurrence from me as to the course you have pursued with your eldest son. It was entirely from worldly vanity that you destined him for the church. 
with a family of three sons and four daughters, you were not warranted in devoting money to an expensive education which has succeeded in nothing but in giving him extravagant idle habits. You are now reaping the consequences. To point out other people's errors was a duty that Mr. Bulstrode rarely shrank from, but Mr. Vincy was not equally prepared to be patient. When a man has the immediate prospect of being mayor, and is ready, in the interests of commerce, to take up a firm attitude on politics generally, he has naturally a sense of his importance to the framework of things, which seems to throw questions of private conduct into the background, and this particular reproof irritated him more than any other. It was eminently superfluous to him to be told that he was reaping the consequences, but he felt his neck under Bulstrode's yoke, and though he usually enjoyed kicking, he was anxious to refrain from that relief. "'As to that, Bulstrode, it's no use going back. I'm not one of your pattern men, and I don't pretend to be. I couldn't foresee everything in the trade. There wasn't a finer business in Middlemarch than ours, and the lad was clever. My poor brother was in the church and would have done well, had got preferment already, but that stomach fever took him off, else he might have been a dean by this time. I think I was justified in what I tried to do for Fred.' If you come to religion, it seems to me a man shouldn't want to carve out his meat to announce beforehand. One must trust a little to Providence and be generous. It's a good British feeling to try and raise your family a little. In my opinion, it's a father's duty to give his sons a fine chance. I don't wish to act otherwise than as your best friend, Vincy, when I say that what you have been uttering just now is one mass of worldliness an inconsistent folly. "'Very well,' said Mr. Vincy, kicking in spite of resolutions. "'I never profess to be anything but worldly. And what's more, I don't see anybody else who is not worldly. I suppose you don't conduct business on what you call unworldly principles. The only difference I see is that one worldliness is a little bit honester than another.' "'This kind of discussion is unfruitful, Vincy,' said Mr. Bulstrode, who, finishing his sandwich, had thrown himself back in his chair, and shaded his eyes as if weary. You had some more particular business? Yes, yes, the long and short of it is, somebody has told old Featherstone, giving you as the authority, that Fred has been borrowing, or trying to borrow money, on the prospect of his land. Of course you never said any such nonsense but the old fellow will insist on it that Fred should bring him a denial in your handwriting. That is, just a bit of a note saying that you don't believe a word of such stuff, either of his having borrowed or tried to borrow in such a fool's way. I suppose you can have no objection to do that. Pardon me. I have an objection. I am by no means sure that your son, in his recklessness and ignorance, I will use no severer word, has not tried to raise money by holding out his future prospects, or even that some one may not have been foolish enough to supply him on so vague a presumption. There is plenty of such lax money-lending as of other folly in the world. But Fred gives me his honor that he has never borrowed money on the pretense of any understanding about his uncle's land. He is not a liar. I don't want to make him better than he is. 
I have blown him up well. Nobody can say I wink at what he does. But he is not a liar. And I should have thought, but I may be wrong, that there was no religion to hinder a man from believing the best of a young fellow, when you don't know worse. It seems to me it would be a poor sort of religion to put a spoke in his wheel by refusing to say you don't believe such harm of him as you've got no good reason to believe. I am not at all sure that I should be befriending your son by smoothing his way to the future possession of Featherstone's property. I cannot regard wealth as a blessing to those who use it simply as a harvest for this world. You do not like to hear these things, Vincy, but on this occasion I feel called upon to tell you that I have no motive for furthering such a disposition of property as that which you refer to. I do not shrink from saying that it will not tend to your son's eternal welfare or to the glory of God. Why, then, should you expect me to pen this kind of affidavit, which has no object but to keep up a foolish partiality and secure a foolish bequest? If you mean to hinder everybody from having money but saints and evangelists, you must give up some profitable partnerships, that's all I can say, Mr. Vincy burst out very bluntly. It may be for the glory of God, but it is not for the glory of the Middlemarch trade that Plymdale's house uses those blue and green dyes it gets from the brassing manufactory. They wrought the silk, that's all I know about it. Perhaps if other people knew so much of the profit went to the glory of God, they might like it better. But I don't mind so much about that. I could get up a pretty row if I chose. Mr. Bulstrode paused a little before he answered. You pain me very much by speaking in this way, Vincy. I do not expect you to understand my grounds of action. It is not an easy thing even to thread a path for principles in the intricacies of the world, still less to make the thread clear for the careless and the scoffing. You must remember, if you please, that I stretch my tolerance towards you as my wife's brother, and that it little becomes you to complain of me as withholding material help towards the worldly position of your family. I must remind you that it is not your own prudence or judgment that has enabled you to keep your place in the trade. Very likely not, but you have been no loser by my trade yet, said Mr. Vincy, thoroughly nettled, a result which was seldom much retarded by previous resolutions. And when you married Harriet, I don't see how you could expect that our families should not hang by the same nail. If you've changed your mind, and want my family to come down in the world, you'd better say so. I've never changed. I'm a plain churchman now, just as I used to be before doctrines came up. I take the world as I find it, in trade and everything else. I'm contented to be no worse than my neighbors, but if you want us to come down in the world, say so. I shall know better what to do, then. You talk unreasonably. Shall you come down in the world for want of this letter about your son? Well, whether or not I consider it very unhandsome of you to refuse it. Such doings may be lined with religion, but outside they have a nasty dog-in-the-manger look. You might as well slander Fred. It comes pretty near to it when you refuse to say you didn't set a slander going. It's this sort of thing, this tyrannical spirit, wanting to play bishop and banker everywhere, 
It's this sort of thing that makes a man's name stink. Vincy, if you insist on quarrelling with me, it will be exceedingly painful to Harriet, as well as myself, said Bulstrode, with a trifle more eagerness and paleness than usual. I don't want to quarrel. It's for my interest, and perhaps for yours, too, that we should be friends. I bear you no grudge. I think no worse of you than I do of other people. A man who half starves himself, and goes to the length in family prayers and so on that you do, believes in his religion whatever it may be, you could turn over your capital just as fast with cursing and swearing. Plenty of fellows do. You like to be master, there's no denying that. You must be first chop in heaven, else you won't like it much. But you're my sister's husband, and we ought to stick together. And if I know Harriet, she'll consider it your fault if we quarrel, because you strain at a gnat in this way, and refuse to do Fred a good turn. And I don't mean to say I shall bear it well. I consider it unhandsome. Mr. Vincy rose, began to button his greatcoat, and looked steadily at his brother-in-law, meaning to imply a demand for a decisive answer. This was not the first time that Mr. Bulstrode had begun by admonishing Mr. Vincy, and had ended by seeing a very unsatisfactory reflection of himself in the coarse, unflattering mirror which that manufacturer's mind presented to the subtler lights and shadows of his fellow-men, and perhaps his experience ought to have warned him how the scene would end. But a full-fed fountain will be generous with its waters even in the rain, when they are worse than useless, and a fine fount of admonition is apt to be equally irrepressible. It was not in Mr. Bulstrode's nature to comply directly in consequence of uncomfortable suggestions. Before changing his course, he always needed to shape his motives and bring them into accordance with his habitual standard. He said, at last, "'I will reflect a little, Vincy. I will mention the subject to Harriet. I shall probably send you a letter.' "'Very well. As soon as you can, please. I hope it will all be settled before I see you to-morrow.'" Chapter Fourteen of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espyat. Follows here the strict receipt for that sauce to dainty meat, named idleness, which many eat by preference and call it sweet. First watch for morsels like a hound, mix well with buffets, stir them round, with good thick oil of flatteries and froth with mean self-lauding lies. Serve warm, the vessels you must choose, to keep it in, are dead men's shoes. Mr. Bulstrode's consultation of Harriet seemed to have had the effect desired by Mr. Vincy, for early the next morning a letter came which Fred could carry to Mr. Featherstone as the required testimony. The old gentleman was staying in bed on account of the cold weather, and as Mary Garth was not to be seen in the sitting-room, Fred went upstairs immediately, and presented the letter to his uncle, who, propped up comfortably on a bed-rest, was not less able than usual to enjoy his consciousness of wisdom in distrusting and frustrating mankind. He put on his spectacles to read the letter, 
pursing up his lips and drawing down their corners. Under the circumstances, I will not decline to state my conviction. Tch! What fine words the fellow puts! He's as fine as an auctioneer! That your son Frederick has not obtained any advance of money on bequests promised by Mr. Featherstone. Promised? Who said I ever promised? I promised nothing. I shall make codicils as long as I like. And that, considering the nature of such a proceeding, it is unreasonable to presume that a young man of sense and character would attempt it. Ah, but the gentleman doesn't say you are a young man of sense and character, mark you that, sir. As to my own concern with any report of such a nature, I distinctly affirm that I never made any statement to the effect that your son had borrowed money on any property that might accrue to him on Mr. Featherstone's demise. Bless my heart! Property! Accrue! Demise! Lawyer Standish is nothing to him. He couldn't speak finer if he wanted to borrow. Well, Mr. Featherstone here looked over his spectacles at Fred, while he handed back the letter to him with a contemptuous gesture. You don't suppose I believe a thing because Bulstrode writes it out fine, eh? Fred colored. You wished to have the letter, sir. I should think it very likely that Mr. Bulstrode's denial is as good as the authority which told you what he denies. Every bit. I never said I believed either one or the other. And now what do you expect? said Mr. Featherstone, curtly, keeping on his spectacles, but withdrawing his hands under his wraps. I expect nothing, sir. Fred with difficulty restrained himself from venting his irritation. I came to bring you the letter. If you like, I will bid you good morning. Not yet, not yet. Ring the bell. I want Missy to come. It was a servant who came in answer to the bell. Tell Missy to come, said Mr. Featherstone impatiently. What business had she to go away? He spoke in the same tone when Mary came. Why couldn't you sit still here till I told you to go? I want my waistcoat now. I told you always to put it on the bed. Mary's eyes looked rather red, as if she had been crying. It was clear that Mr. Featherstone was in one of his most snappish humors this morning, and though Fred had now the prospect of receiving the much-needed present of money, he would have preferred being free to turn round on the old tyrant and tell him that Mary Garth was too good to be at his beck. Though Fred had risen as she entered the room, she had barely noticed him, and looked as if her nerves were quivering with the expectation that something would be thrown at her. But she never had anything worse than words to dread. When she went to reach the waistcoat from a peg, Fred went up to her and said, "'Allow me.' "'Let it alone. You bring it, Missy, and lay it down here,' said Mr. Featherstone. "'Now you go away again till I call you,' he added, when the waistcoat was laid down by him. It was usual with him to season his pleasure in showing favor to one person by being especially disagreeable to another, and Mary was always at hand to furnish the condiment. When his own relatives came, she was treated better. Slowly he took out a bunch of keys from the waistcoat pocket, and slowly he drew forth a tin box which was under the bedclothes. "'You expect I'm going to give you a little fortune, eh?' he said, looking above his spectacles and pausing in the act of opening the lid. "'Not at all, sir. 
you were good enough to speak of making me a present the other day else of course i should not have thought of the matter but fred was of a hopeful disposition and a vision had presented itself of a sum just large enough to deliver him from a certain anxiety when fred got into debt it always seemed to him highly probable that something or other he did not necessarily conceive what would come to pass enabling him to pay in due time and now that the providential occurrence was apparently close at hand it would have been sheer absurdity to think that the supply would be short of the need as absurd as a faith that believed in half a miracle for want of strength to believe in a whole one the deep-veined hands fingered many bank-notes one after the other laying them down flat again while fred leaned back in his chair scorning to look eager he held himself to be a gentleman at heart and did not like courting an old fellow for his money at last mr featherstone eyed him again over his spectacles and presented him with a little sheaf of notes fred could see distinctly that there were but five as the less significant edges gaped towards him but then each might mean fifty pounds he took them saying i am very much obliged to you sir and was going to roll them up without seeming to think of their value but this did not suit mr featherstone who was eyeing him intently come don't you think it worth your while to count em you take money like a lord i suppose you lose it like one i thought i was not to look a gift horse in the mouth sir but i shall be very happy to count them fred was not so happy however after he had counted them for they actually presented the absurdity of being less than his hopefulness had decided that they must be what can the fitness of things mean if not their fitness to a man's expectations failing this absurdity and atheism gape behind him the collapse for fred was severe when he found that he held no more than five twenties and his share in the higher education of this country did not seem to help him nevertheless he said with rapid changes in his fair complexion it is very handsome of you sir i should think it is said mr featherstone locking his box and replacing it then taking off his spectacles deliberately and at length as if his inward meditation had more deeply convinced him repeating i should think it handsome i assure you sir i am very grateful said fred who had had time to recover his cheerful air so you ought to be you want to cut a figure in the world and i reckon peter featherstone is the only one you've got to trust to here the old man's eyes gleamed with a curiously mingled satisfaction in the consciousness that this smart young fellow relied upon him and that the smart young fellow was rather a fool for doing so yes indeed i was not born to very splendid chances few men have been more cramped than i have been said fred with some sense of surprise at his own virtue considering how hardly he was dealt with it really seems a little too bad to have to ride a broken-winded hunter and see men who are not half such good judges as yourself able to throw away any amount of money on buying bad bargains well you can buy yourself a fine hunter now eighty pound is enough for that i reckon and you'll have twenty pound over to get yourself out of any little scrape said mr featherstone chuckling slightly you are very good sir said fred with a fine sense of contrast between the words and his feeling i rather a better uncle than your fine uncle bulstrode you won't get much out of his speculations i think 
He's got a pretty strong string around your father's leg by what I hear, eh? My father never tells me anything about his affairs, sir. Well, he shows some sense there. But other people find him out without his telling. He'll never have much to leave you. He'll most like die without a will. He's the sort of man to do it. Let em make him mayor of Middlemarch as much as they like. But you won't get much by his dying without a will, though you are the eldest son. Fred thought that Mr. Featherstone had never been so disagreeable before. True, he had never before given him quite so much money at once. "'Shall I destroy this letter of Mr. Bulstrode's, sir?' said Fred, rising with the letter as if he would put it in the fire. "'Aye, aye, I don't want it. It's worth no money to me.' Fred carried the letter to the fire and thrust the poker through it with much zest. He longed to get out of the room, but he was a little ashamed before his inner self, as well as before his uncle, to run away immediately after pocketing the money. Presently the farm bailiff came up to give his master a report, and Fred, to his unspeakable relief, was dismissed with the injunction to come again soon. He had longed not only to be set free from his uncle, but also to find Mary Garth. She was now in her usual place by the fire, with sewing in her hands, and a book open on the little table by her side. Her eyelids had lost some of their redness now, and she had her usual air of self-command. "'Am I wanted upstairs?' she said, half-rising as Fred entered. "'No, I am only dismissed, because Simmons has gone up.' Mary sat down again and resumed her work. She was certainly treating him with more indifference than usual. She did not know how affectionately indignant he had felt on her behalf upstairs. "'May I stay here a little, Mary, or shall I bore you?' "'Pray sit down,' said Mary. You will not be so heavy a bore as Mr. John Wall, who was here yesterday, and he sat down without asking my leave. Poor fellow, I think he is in love with you. I am not aware of it, and to me it is one of the most odious things in a girl's life, that there must always be some supposition of falling in love coming between her and any man who is kind to her, and to whom she is grateful. I should have thought that I at least might have been safe from all that. I have no ground for the nonsensical vanity of fancying everybody who comes near me is in love with me. Mary did not mean to betray any feeling, but, in spite of herself, she ended in a tremulous tone of vexation. Confound John Wall! I did not mean to make you angry. I didn't know you had any reason for being grateful to me. I forgot what a great service you think it if anyone snuffs a candle for you. Fred also had his pride, and was not going to show that he knew what had called forth this outburst of Mary's. "'Oh, I am not angry, except with the ways of the world. I do like to be spoken to as if I had common sense. I really often feel as if I could understand a little more than I ever hear, even from young gentlemen who have been to college.' Mary had recovered, and she spoke with a suppressed rippling undercurrent of laughter, pleasant to hear. "'I don't care how merry you are at my expense this morning,' said Fred. "'I thought you looked so sad when you came upstairs. "'It is a shame you should stay here to be bullied in that way.' "'Oh, I have an easy life, by comparison. "'I have tried being a teacher, and I am not fit for that. "'My mind is too fond of wandering on its own way. "'I think any hardship is better than pretending to do what one is paid for, 
and never really doing it. Everything here I can do as well as anyone else could, perhaps better than some. Rosy, for example. Though she is just the sort of beautiful creature that is imprisoned with ogres and fairy tales. Rosy! cried Fred, in a tone of profound brotherly skepticism. Come, Fred, said Mary emphatically. You have no right to be so critical. Do you mean anything particular, just now? No, I mean something general, always. Oh, that I am idle and extravagant. Well, I am not fit to be a poor man. I should not have made a bad fellow if I had been rich. You would have done your duty in that state of light to which it has not pleased God to call you, said Mary, laughing. Well, I couldn't do my duty as a clergyman any more than you could do yours as a governess. You ought to have a little fellow feeling there, Mary. I never said you ought to be a clergyman. There are other sorts of work. It seems to me very miserable not to resolve on some course and act accordingly. So I could, if— Fred broke off and stood up, leaning against the mantelpiece. If you were sure you should not have a fortune? I did not say that. You want to quarrel with me. It is too bad of you to be guided by what other people say about me. How can I want to quarrel with you? I should be quarreling with all my new books, said Mary, lifting the volume on the table. However naughty you may be to other people, you are good to me. Because I like you better than anyone else. But I know you despise me. Yes, I do, a little, said Mary, nodding with a smile. You would admire a stupendous fellow who would have wise opinions about everything. Yes, I should. Mary was sewing swiftly, and seemed provokingly mistress of the situation. When a conversation has taken a wrong turn for us, we only get farther and farther into the swamp of awkwardness. This was what Fred Vincy felt. I suppose a woman is never in love with anyone she has always known, ever since she can remember, as a man often is. It is always some new fellow who strikes a girl. Let me see, said Mary the corners of her mouth curling archly. I must go back on my experience. There is Juliet. She seems an example of what you say. But then Ophelia had probably known Hamlet a long while. And Brenda Troyle. She had known Mordaunt Merton ever since they were children. But then he seems to have been an estimable young man. And Minna was still more deeply in love with Cleveland, who was a stranger. Waverley was new to Flora MacIver, but then she did not fall in love with him. And there are Olivia and Sophia Primrose, and Corinna. They may be said to have fallen in love with the new men. Altogether, my experience is rather mixed. Mary looked up with some roguishness at Fred, and that look of hers was very dear to him, though the eyes were nothing more than clear windows where observation sat laughingly. He was certainly an affectionate fellow, and as he had grown from boy to man, he had grown in love with his old playmate, notwithstanding that share in the higher education of the country which had exalted his views of rank and income. When a man is not loved, it is no use for him to say that he could be a better fellow, could do anything, I mean, if he were sure of being loved in return. 
not of the least use in the world for him to say he could be better might could would they are contemptible auxiliaries i don't see how a man is to be good for much unless he has some woman to love him dearly i think the goodness should come before he expects that you know better mary women don't love men for their goodness perhaps not but if they love them they never think them bad it is hardly fair to say i am bad i said nothing at all about you i shall never be good for anything mary if you will not say that you love me if you will not promise to marry me i mean when i am able to marry if i did love you i would not marry you i would certainly not promise ever to marry you i think that is quite wicked mary if you love me you ought to promise to marry me on the contrary i think it would be wicked in me to marry you even if i did love you you mean just as i am without any means of maintaining a wife of course i am but three-and-twenty in that last point you will alter but i am not so sure of any other alteration my father says an idle man ought not to exist much less be married then am i to blow my brains out no on the whole i should think you would do better to pass your examination i have heard mr fairbrother say it is disgracefully easy that is all very fine anything is easy to him not that cleverness has anything to do with it i am ten times cleverer than many men who pass dear me said mary unable to repress her sarcasm that accounts for the curates like mr kraus divide your cleverness by ten and the quotient dear me is able to take a degree but that only shows that you are ten times more idle than the others well if i did pass you would not want me to go into the church that is not the question what i want you to do you have a conscience of your own i suppose there there is mr lydgate i must go and tell my uncle mary said fred seizing her hand as she rose if you will not give me some encouragement i shall get worse instead of better i will not give you any encouragement said mary reddening your friends would dislike it and so would mine my father would think it a disgrace to me if i accepted a man who got into debt and would not work fred was stung and released her hand she walked to the door but there she turned and said fred you have always been so good so generous to me i am not ungrateful but never speak to me in that way again very well said fred sulkily taking up his hat and whip his complexion showed patches of pale pink and dead white like many a plucked idle young gentleman he was thoroughly in love and with a plain girl who had no money but having mr featherstone's land in the background and a persuasion that let mary say what she would she really did care for him fred was not utterly in despair when he got home he gave four of the twenties to his mother asking her to keep them for him i don't want to spend that money mother i want to pay a debt with it so keep it safe away from my fingers bless you my dear said mrs vincy she doted on her eldest son and her youngest girl a child of six whom others thought her two naughtiest children the mother's eyes are not always deceived by their partiality 
at least she can best judge who is the tender, filial-hearted child. And Fred was certainly very fond of his mother. Perhaps it was his fondness for another person also that made him particularly anxious to take some security against his own liability to spend a hundred pounds. For the creditor to whom he owed a hundred and sixty held a firmer security in the shape of a bill signed by Mary's father. End of chapter 14「Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.